Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I am your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach, your relationship coach. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to teach you about ISIS, get you relating, or at least understanding, conversant with ISIS. We're also going to be talking a little bit later uh, this morning about uh, finances and how you can manage the difficulty of finances as a couple. And also, finally, emotions. Do you feel like you are an emotionally literate person? Do you even know what your emotions are for? We're going to be talking about all of that today. Holy cow, we got a great show. And it's snowing. It was snowing at my house this morning. Yeah? And uh, uh, you enjoy that? I would. James, take a note. Okay. Um, Matt, to-do list. Get new windshield wipers. Okay. Before it snows. Again. Where are you sending this one, James? Are you sending this to a submarine off of Um, It's Russia? actually an oil tanker. Yeah. An oil tanker. little Morse code. Mm-hmm. I need windshield wipers. They sell them at many of your favorite shopping locations. I know. I, you know what? By the way, not to brag about my... Mechanic abilities. Or lack of. No, that is the oh. one thing I do know how to do. Change windshield wipers. Well, yeah. Yep. Can uh, you seal the uh, anti the antifreeze reservoir on your vehicle if it's leaking? What's an antifreeze reservoir? It's the container that your, your antifreeze. Can I seal it? Yeah. It's like the bottom's yeah, leaking. I could. How? 300 bucks. You to get a guy named to do- Lenny. That's what, I, that's, what I, that's what I did over the weekend. Did you really? Laying under my truck with a, a, an epoxy yeah. fix, a repair kit. Is that kit. why your fingers, th- two of your fingers were stuck together? Well, they, they almost were when I was doing it because that stuff, that stuff uh, activates fast. I don't, I don't do that. Yeah. In fact, when I see people like, like when I have a car problem and then you take it to a mechanic and they just get underneath and just scoot under your car, like even on their back in their regular clothes, I'm looking at the dude like, Oh, what are you doing? You're going to be filthy. <laughs> You're going to be filthy. Get up, man. Yeah, there's some car repairs I'll do. Others I just don't even attempt. No. no. There's a guy for that. There's a guy for that. And I figure that's why you make money, to give it away to people like that. Really? Yeah. A lot of people so, want to save the money, not me. It's so benevolent of you. I like giving all of my money away. So does my wife. Speaking of giving money away. Yes. Do you hear about the uh, senator from New Jersey? Which one? No. Robert Menendez. Okay. Heard of him before. He was indicted on corruption charges yesterday. <gasps> Allegations that the high-ranking Democrat vowed to fight. He, he will fight these charges He's he, a at a news conference. He's a senator? Yes. Are you kidding? Menendez was indicted by a grand jury in New Jersey for accepting gifts from Salman Milgan, a Florida eye doctor, in exchange for using the power of his Senate office to benefit Milgan's financial and personal interests. Something to do with uh, shaping Medicare law so that the doctor would benefit by the millions. And then the doctor gave him money for campaign funds and flew him around on jets, and, allegedly. Allegedly. And so the senator's fighting that. That, that. that happened yesterday. You know, to be a sitting senator and be indicted, that's a pretty big deal. 
Yeah, he, he he's ashamed that the Justice Department was tricked into taking this case. Blasted Justice Department. Now, you know what's interesting? Because we've had – remember when we had the FBI uh, agent on? Yes. You know, off air, I asked him about a lot of cases I'm hearing about, and he can't speak about them. No. But he's like, let me just tell you this. We don't bring a case we can't make. That's it, all I say. But at, at some point, it comes down to politically, does this make yeah, sense? that's right. So, oh, interesting. Fun times in New Jersey. New Indiana bill. Yes. The uh, governor came out and said they will fix this. We're going to fix this. This isn't quite there. The new religious freedom law would specify that it cannot be used as a legal defense to discriminate against residents based on their sexual orientation. Yep. The Indianapolis Star, this is from their, their paper. Republican lawmakers have taken the draft to Governor Mike Pence, who requested the fix on Tuesday. The language does not go so far as to make... Gays and lesbians, a protected class under state law. That's what they were hoping for, right, I guess. Proposed right. fix would exempt churches and nonprofit religious organizations. The language will still have to pass the Republican-controlled House and Senate. Democrats want the religion law replaced by an anti-discrimination legalization for gays and lesbians. Mm-hmm. Then you had Arkansas yesterday yeah. who had a law that was up on the table for the governor. Governor he had, Hutchinson couldn't he, back He was out like, faster. I'm going to do this, and he backpedaled so fast. Well, Walmart, right? Walmart, Walmart came CEO. out. Yeah, you don't want to tick off Walmart. No. I mean, they own that state. So it says that the uh, the legislator Tuesday, legislature on Tuesday, uh, the bill, he said he won't, the governor said he won't sign the bill as it's currently constructed. Like the Indiana law, the Arkansas measure allows persons who feel their religious freedom is substantially burdened to fight an order in court. Even Hutchinson's son signed a, the petition calling for the governor to veto the bill. He mentioned that in his press conference. Interesting. So he's got, you know, home base. And by the way, too. stay tuned because is it Tuesday? We are going, we have a discussion with Governor Mike Levitt, former Secretary of House and uh, Human Services with the Bush administration, who helped, who, who just basically was involved in Utah's law, which would probably, I believe, be maybe a better template for some of these other states. They might want to go look at the Utah law that was just passed. So Governor Levitt coming up Tuesday morning. Yes. The uh, Iranian nuclear uh, treaty yeah. discussions yeah. are continuing, yeah. well, even though there was a deadline. What, what? Remember when you'd play games with your friends and you wanted to just continue the game? Yes. What would you say? Uh, it's kind of like a do-over, but it's more like... A we, mulligan? It's like uh, a mulligan, extended time. You know, we just yeah. extend... So they keep setting deadlines, and then they get extensions. Yeah. Well, it's like you say, first one to twenty-one wins, and then you get to it's twenty-one to nineteen, yeah. and then they then it's then they score or whatever. No, okay, first one to twenty-six. Yeah, you, you first just keep, one to thirty-one. I'm that, that's 31. how this is. Yeah, uh, it says even with a vague outline of an Iranian nuclear deal eluding their grasp, negotiators headed for double overtime Wednesday night <laughs> in a marathon attempt to find common ground on a more important task. Forging a final deal by the end of June. Iran yeah. and six world leaders cited progress in abandoning their March 31st deadline for the basic understanding that they would prepare the ground for the new phase of negotiations on a substantive deal. You know what's interesting? Um, I think they ought to quit calling it second quarter or second uh, uh, overtime, third yeah. overtime. Double overtime. Maybe yeah. they, what they ought to say now is just kind of reset. Okay. We, we pushed really hard for a deadline. We got really close. We're going to now move to a new phase, and this is the new phase because now everyone – no one's buying it anymore. 
As it says here, uh, differences persisted late into Wednesday. This, the State Department announced that Secretary of State John Kerry was postponing his departure and re- would remain until at least Thursday morning. The uh, the one of the big problems is this: Kerry can't leave with a vague outline. Yeah, no. There has to be something of substance to go because he has to go to the Senate, go to you yeah. know the Congress and say, "Hey, here's our agreement." And if you walk in with just some vague, yeah. Promises you have to have something they can they can hold on to so that Congress will agree. Well, to it. do you want to bet within the next week they'll say we didn't say we were going to do a nuclear deal. We just said we were going to talk about doing it. Yeah, they'll start backing out. Did we say nuclear deal? What so, yeah. was it with Iran? I don't think we said Iran, did we? Anyway. So it's, it's it's interesting how this keeps going. Like it's close, but yeah. and then Iran's like, well, we want to have this now. Yeah. And they try to... We don't know. even want this to be about our nuclear weapons. Yeah, that's that. You know, that's what happens when you, it's, when you have to have a big negotiation with an organization or a country. Oh, I guess we're done. Um, wow. James has been very prompt lately. Somebody must have put a bug in his ear. Did somebody put a bug in your ear? Maybe. Really? Hey, folks, when we come back, we're going to be talking about ISIS. Uh, and, and there's a great book out called ISIS, The State of Terror. J.M. Berger, one of the authors of this book, he's going to be joining us, giving us all of the, the background on how ISIS became ISIS. Tons of interesting information up next on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, ISIS is it's a pretty brutal organization, isn't it? And do, do you feel like you know what it's even about? I mean, we know they behead people. We know they're causing chaos in the Middle East. And we've talked about it a lot on this show that um, I think the key to this is just to be informed uh, as somebody, I've loved news my entire life, but, you know, it's hard to keep up with it all and to understand what's going on. And there's all of these different arguments. We need to be over there. We need to have boots on the ground. We need to have more uh, soldiers over there. And also, we, we're terrorized and terrified, and we hear more and more of ISIS and its impact across the country. So I thought it might be a good idea to get some background and to better understand what is ISIS uh, and what is the state? What is this? The ISIS, the state of terror. What is the war going on? Why is it going on over there? Why ISIS? Do we ever get out of this? How do you actually beat or end uh, an organization that's so founded in its ideology, that's so based in, in in its belief and its connection to God and its belief to God? Do you ever rid the world of an ideology? 
We're going to talk about it today. Joining us on the phone is J.M. Berger. He is the author of the book uh, ISIS, The State of Terror, and uh, also is a non-resident fellow with Brookings Institution. He's the author of Jihad Joe, Americans Who Go to War in the Name of Islam, which is a critically acclaimed uh, history of the American jihadist movement. He's a regular contributor to Foreign Policy magazine, and you can go uh, find out more on intelwire.com, where he has published thousands of declassified documents on the September 11th talks or uh, September 11th attacks. J.M. Berger, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's great to have you. And just the book, uh, it's 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 so full of information that uh, I'm I'm excited to be able to pick your brain and, and start uh, start understanding this better with our viewers and listeners. Uh, tell us about ISIS. Okay, so how is ISIS different than Al Qaeda? We, we know we went to war with al-Qaeda in Iraq, but how is it different? How did ISIS come out of al-Qaeda? Well, uh, ISIS is an evolution of al-Qaeda, in it, both in its strategies and, and how it presents itself, and, and in a very sort of physical, literal way. I mean, back in 2003, there was no such thing as al-Qaeda in Iraq. And, you know, in right. destabilized environment that sprang up after we invaded al-Qaeda, put a foothold in, and it was founded by a guy named Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who had been a jihadist for a long time, but had never really affiliated himself with al-Qaeda because he had differences in strategy. He believed in a, a much more brutal form of jihadism than al-Qaeda did, which is you know something that can be hard to ha- wrap your head around. Yeah. Uh, and he also believed in, in sectarian conflict uh, in a way that Osama bin Laden didn't. So he was he he didn't only want to separate the world into Muslims and non-Muslims, but he wanted to separate Muslims into good Muslims and bad Muslims and huh. kill the ones he thought were bad. So when the when we got into this conflict, uh, you know, there's an insurgency springing up in Iraq. There's a lot of chaos. And uh, Zarqawi had started operations a little bit earlier, and he decided to affiliate himself with al-Qaeda. It was really the first al-Qaeda affiliate, as we understand it now. And uh, for some years, they, they were able to coexist with tensions. So al-Qaeda Central, as we now call it, which is the original al-Qaeda that attacked us on September 11th, uh-huh. uh, really tried to pressure al-Qaeda in Iraq because they, they felt that the tactics they were using were too brutal, that they were alienating people, um, and and they were able to exert some pressure on the original group, but uh, not completely rein in its, its excesses. Um, you know, over the course of the conflict and the surge and, and thereafter, you know, we went through Al Qaeda in Iraq went through several leadership changes. We we killed Zarqawi in two thousand six. Uh we killed his successors and uh the group changed over this time because it had really alienated so many people with its extreme violence. Um that, you know, partly out of a desire to rebrand and also partly as an adjustment of its strategy, it changed its name to the Islamic State in Iraq. Hmm. And then subsequently ISIS when they tried to expand into Syria. Uh so really there was just a built in tension all along, you know, that yeah. that really the the evolution of the group, I think, was was kind of inevitable in some ways, and it really hit a, a critical point uh, in Syria because ISIS, precursor to ISIS, uh, ISIS, Islamic State in Iraq, 
had sent a team of people to Syria to try and take advantage of the civil war that was breaking out there. And that group, which we now know as Javad al-Nusra, was so successful that ISIS wanted to publicly claim them. They had sent them as sort of a covert team first. And unfortunately, Javad al-Nusra had become so successful that they didn't want to be under the the header of ISIS. ISIS had a terrible reputation. It was very alienating, whereas Jabhat al-Nusra had really managed to unify a lot of factions in Syria because it took a more moderate approach. So when ISIS tried, ISIS basically tried to annex al-Nusra and al-Qaeda nixed that. And that's that's when the official Interesting. happened. Well, and then it seems like uh, what's weird is that that empty or that void that uh, I guess the governmental control that was created when we entered Iraq, where we, we I can't remember what you called it, but um, there was just an absence of control. And it seems like what's happening in the Middle East is as government regimes are falling in Yemen, in Syria, um, all of this. It seems like that's where is that being caused by ISIS or is ISIS just benefiting? because of that well that, that's a great point matt i mean that's i've been thinking about this a lot and, and sort of trying to formulate how i want to write about it really uh you know isis in particular jihadist roots in general but isis in particular really thrives in a, in a vacuum yeah. a power vacuum and there's a combination of factors in some cases in syria they were exploiting a vacuum that had already existed in iraq too uh and in other cases they're looking for ways to expand that so you know what we saw on March 20th was that they they bombed two Houthi mosques in Yemen, right? Uh, and you know that set off a chain reaction that that really has has resulted in like open war and no government in in Yemen. No. Now I don't want to overstate ISIS's credit for that. There's a uh, this was probably an inevitable thing. Yeah. But you know, I've been I've been thinking about it in terms of sort of the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand. You know, it's it's. There's a, a giant pool of gasoline, and, and they happen to be the ones who threw the match. Threw the match. Well, because, again, too, and this is weird, because the United States was also in a kind of backroom sort of way working Yemen as well, right? And maybe destabilizing, I don't know, uh, creating conditions where it was, I don't know, easier to fall? Or were we supporting Yemen? How? I mean, I guess that my issue is, at what point do we get involved? Because it seems like the more the United States is getting involved, the more we create power vacuums in certain places, and we ennoble some and, and embolden some, and we weaken others, and sometimes we weaken our, our, you know, our coalition, our partner, and sometimes we strengthen our enemies. Yeah, I mean, you know, our our recent history of intervention in the region is is not too successful. Um, you know, in Yemen, I think uh, when you you look at the situation there and how our policies have kind of shaped our interactions with Yemen, I think that uh, we really made Yemen into an instrument of counterterrorism policy and ignored the really vastly complex series of problems and 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 divisions that were in the country. So, you know, because we're so focused on, on this as our counterterrorism tool, uh, a lot of other stuff that was going on just never got attention. So if we're going to go in and, and be involved in the country's internal dynamics in, in such a significant way, 
you know, we can't just do it through a counterterrorism filter. Mm. There's really a lot of other things that you have to consider, and it's a big project. You know, any given country is a big project, yeah. and we're kind of doing it in a lot of different countries, so it gets to be very challenging. Talk about ISIS. I mean, ISIS as an ideology, you brought it up a little bit. Um, they They have a completely different paradigm that is probably – driving them that's kind of more related to their view of the apocalypse the end time the end of times they're they're okay they think they're you know they're trumpeting in the grand finale don't they yeah yeah as as my co-author jessica cern and i wrote in the book it's really uh, in many ways, ISIS is sort of a classic, uh, what you would call millenarian cult. It's, mm. a, it's an end times, end times belief system that anticipates the end of the world and is, sees, really looks around and sees, you know, and we, we've seen this in other kinds of, uh, movements, not just Islamic and not just, uh, religious. But you, you know, you look around and you see signs that are the signs that everything is coming to an end, and that just adds an incredible commitment and urgency. If you really believe that the world's coming to an end, there's a lot you might do that you wouldn't do under normal circumstances. Yeah, you bet. And, and you would probably welcome the West to come into this battle because that will only expedite the process of the end of times. Yeah, and, and ISIS is, you know, and ISIS, but Al Qaeda did this too, but ISIS is much more uh, committed to it as a, a narrative. It's, it's really let's sort of cast the West in the role of the of Rome, as they refer to it. They, mm-hmm. they call us, you know, they use Rome to stand in for the West because, you know, the traditions, there's not really very consistent apocalyptic traditions in Islam. Right. You know, it's not like the Book of Revelations in Christianity yeah. where everybody kind of has the same idea. So they can pull from a lot of different stuff. And a lot of these narratives talk about Rome. And so we're Rome now <laughs> in, in their minds. And they want us to come in and, and not just to, to be there to like be involved in this battle, but to do specific things. So they see, they anticipate a, a massive battle in the town called Dubik in Syria and they they have geared a lot of their propaganda to this and including even one of their execution videos where they're like you know they said right out for you know just flat out we're waiting for you in Dubik Here we go, huh? Uh, let's take a break. We're talking with J.M. Berger, uh, who's one of the authors of the book ISIS, The State of Terror. He also wrote that uh, with Jessica Stern. And J.M. Berger is a non-resident fellow with the Brookings Institution, also the author of Jihad Joe, Americans Who Go to War in the Name of Islam. We're just picking his brain, trying to understand more ISIS and uh, the threat that it really is and the ideology, how you understand it. When we come back, I really want to talk about uh, how other, uh, you know, faithful members of Islam see ISIS and uh, and maybe some some leadership ideas that we might want to look forward to as, as our government getting involved in all of this. Pick his brain on that. This is the Matt Townsend Show. More uh, understanding ISIS after this break. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today, we are discussing ISIS, 
the state of terror, trying to give you just a heads up on what it actually is, how ISIS came to be. We're using as our textbook today, my wonderful students, ISIS, The State of Terror, and uh, written by Jessica Stern and J.M. Berger. Joining us on the phone right now is J.M. Berger, and he is, uh, he's trying to teach us. We're, you know, we're kind of slow learners. J.M. Berger is a non-resident fellow with the Brookings Institution and author of Jihad Joe, Americans Who Go to War in the Name of Islam. Uh, you can go to the website intelwire.com and you can uh, find uh, thousands of, of declassified documents that he's published on September 11th attacks and the, also the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, so again, J.M., thanks for being with us. Thank you. Talk about um, so as part of this, not only is there kind of this, uh, you know, this end of the world millennial, I think you called it millennium cult, millenarian, millenarian cult kind of approach to to this, to the to taking on the West or Rome, as they call us. they're also wanting to establish a caliphate. This is so. This is a belief in their faith uh, of a holy city. Talk about. Teach us about the caliphate and why that's such a different or, or important concept. Well, the caliphate is a historical, the historical Muslim political state, and it's taken on different forms over the course of you know centuries. Um, and it, you know, the most recent iteration of that fell within the last couple hundred years, and it's a powerful, it's a powerful uh, image for for a lot of Muslims. It has a lot of resonance, and the fact that ISIS is has taken hold of it and claimed it is uh, very divisive. So some people, you know, a very small number of people get very excited about it, and then a lot of other people are, are really, you know, find it almost blasphemous. It's so hmm. ludicrous. Is it? Is it? Are they turning off other Muslims? What, what does the rest of the Islamic world think of ISIS? ISIS is, you know, a percentage of, of percentage of of all Muslims. It's it's really, uh, you know, by design to some extent, a very fringe movement. Um, Al Qaeda sort of pitched its its message to a very large segment of Muslims. They tried to be, you know, they presented arguments that they thought were very reasonable and intellectual, and you know, and even even with that kind of pitch, they still just had an incredibly tiny base of support. ISIS has moved into more, it's more visceral, it's, it's making a very emotional play. And so what it's getting, you know, it's sort of reduced the pool of people who are interested in some ways, but the pool of people who are vulnerable to its message are much more energized. So we're seeing more people because of that. So it, it increases the energy with those that are fighting, but it probably decreased the, the people that are actually on board. Well, they're getting more people because the people, like, Al-Qaeda had a lot of passive supporters, people who would sort of like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, cool. I mean, when I say a lot, again, we're talking a percentage of a percentage. Right. But, uh, you know, but they weren't necessarily moved to act by Al-Qaeda's message, whereas people who are receptive to ISIS's message are much more inclined to, to act, to, mm. to carry it out. So it's, you know, the, old, the net result is they have, they're really the biggest, biggest, jihadist group, biggest extremist group, really, in, in the world today. Do, do you sense that other Muslim states and leadership from other Muslim states, are they are condemning ISIS? Is, is that happening in the Islamic world? 
It is. The the local politics are, are complicated on the, on the political leadership right. side when we're talking about governments. So, for instance, you know, pretty disappointingly, Saudi Arabia has taken a very strong stand against the Houthis in Yemen, seeing them as a proxy for Iran, which is only part of the picture. Uh-huh. Uh, whereas they, their their role against ISIS is much less visible, and you know I think a lot of people sort of look at that and and are dismayed by that. Um, at the same time, you know we have Jordan has really taken part in a very right. strong way in this. Uh, you know Egypt is is fighting ISIS, but you know a lot of these partners, with the exception of Jordan, really a lot of these partners are very problematic for us. I mean you know the Egyptian government is a counter-coup yeah. government. You know, uh, the Saudis obviously live long chronicles of the, the problems we have with them. Uh, and then in Syria and in Iraq now, you know, we're, we're sort of in this position, very uneasy position, where things that we do are benefiting the Syrian regime or the Iranian regime. And, and you know, we, we're really struggling to try and tune our actions to suppress ISIS without... You know, allowing, for instance, Iranian-linked militias in Iraq to mm-hmm. carry out atrocities, which we've seen very recently. Yeah, is it? Do, do you get a sense that uh, as the Americans, I guess, try to stay out of? Um, I don't know. I mean, they're not. We're not out of it. But as we try to, as we try to, at least not put more of our own soldiers on the ground fighting these wars. Is that is that a strategy that you sense will work? Because is it forcing a little more chaos in the in the area? Yet it seems like more and more, as as we're not in there fighting that war per se. Jordan, you know, they had their tragedy with their pilot. Now they're more involved. It seems like again because of the Houthis, I guess Saudi Arabia has jumped in. Iran's in a weird way. Saudi Arabia and Iran are fighting by proxy in Yemen. I'm assuming. So it just seems like other people are getting involved now. And is that is that the strategy? And is that a good strategy? Uh, it, I think it's a good strategy for us to encourage regional players to take carry their own burdens. Mm. I think that for a lot of years, um, you know, countries in the region have been able to sort of sit back and and assume that we were going to take care of problems, right? And I, you know, I think that's pretty unhealthy. I think there's we've seen some obvious bad effects from that. Um, you know, now the problem is honestly is like you know with with ISIS, there's no path through this that isn't going to come at a, a horrific human cost. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one of the, the paths through this is really, is, and I think we're seeing the start of that now, is it's really a massive regional war that really resets the borders and resets the regimes. And, you know, that's going to be, it's going to be very difficult for us to sit on the sidelines in, in something like that. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of complications that could come in. For instance, the Russians could come in in support of Iran in such a conflict, and we might feel like we needed to respond to that. So, you know, I I mean, I think I've sort of come to the conclusion over time that really we need to let the regional players sort things out, and and we may need to exercise the discipline to stay out even when things are, are terrible. Yeah. Because... 
I mean, our, we always have a, a, an action bias, right? You know, that's, that's uh-huh. what politicians We're have. We're doers, right. I think Americans have that. You know, we got to do something about this. And, and the question is, can we do something about it that's going to make it better and also not harm our own security? Right. Well, and, and do something about ideology and tribal warfare that's gone on for thousands of years. I mean, you, you're not going to solve it with one decision from our Congress. Yeah. I mean, and, and really, you know, there's arguably you could you could make a case that uh, a full scale ground invasion in which we held vast amounts of territory in the Middle East may, might <laughs> solve the problem, and but it might not. Right. And well, it would make know, great it would video for ISIS. Up. Yeah. Yeah, and Americans wouldn't support it. Right. Well, and maybe just teach us, because I don't think a lot of it, we hear the word Sunni, we hear the word Shia a lot, but a lot of this is just tribal, right? This just comes down to tribes and then power struggles between the tribes, and that's where those vacuums come in. Maybe, how much of this is just like Shia-Sunni problem? Yeah, I mean, there is a religious dimension to it, but you're right. I mean, a lot of it does have to do with really local politics and tribes. So, you know, we talked about this in the book about in Iraq. Part of the reason that al-Qaeda in Iraq was able to come back as ISIS was that there were a lot of sectarian problems. The, the regime was Shia. They they cracked down on Sunnis. They pushed out Sunnis. But ultimately, these are like political plays for tribes. Right. And, and it's exactly that. And the same thing in Yemen. The Houthis aren't even really just a Shia movement. They're not. They're they're a minority, an ethnic minority, and there's a a lot of Shias in it. But there are also Sunnis who are fighting on the same side as it. You know, and we talk about it in sort of very simple terms. I mean, I think, the, you know, the religious dimension of all this stuff sometimes gets overplayed. And it's for a group like ISIS especially, I mean, uh, it's really it's, it's about having an exclusive identity. Hmm. And, you know, we see a pattern of groups, you know, that are like this. We see neo-Nazis or the Nazi party, uh, you know, that, that have no ideological similarities. But they're about what they're about is saying that, you know, my my group is the chosen group. And yeah. everybody else is danger and should be killed. And that's, you know, so in this case, Sunni Shia is the line that they've drawn around it. But well, yeah, that's I guess that's it, too, is they, it, you know, it might be religious in in, you know, in the beginning. But it's also it's their identity. They're really fighting for identity and, you know, sources of power. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it, there's definitely, you know, religion is part of it. It's, uh, religion is part of their, their message. It's, it shapes the exact structure of what they do. But, you know, really, you mentioned this earlier, and I've written about it. The, there's this debate about should we talk about ISIS as Islamic? Mm. It's, it's a group that is fundamentally Islamic. And it sort of, you know, comes down to that uh the question of how big a frame you want to put around this problem. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you have a problem with sharks, you want to come up with a strategy to fight fish. <laughs> you know, right. uh, I think that it's, it's when you look at ISIS, it's very similar to other identity groups and not very similar to other Muslim groups. Yeah. In fact, you, you, you talk about that. Um, by the way, we're talking with uh, J.M. Berger, one of the authors of ISIS, The State of Terror. Uh, he, he co-authored that book with Jessica Stern. And, uh, J.M., one of the things about this, I think, to remember, and you bring it up in your book, is to be ignorant to Islam 
makes people vulnerable, especially even our youth might be vulnerable. If, if we don't understand Islam, and, and I love that you keep saying it's a percentage of, one, of a percentage. It's a very small group we're talking about here. So um, explain what you mean why, about being ignorant to Islam. Yeah, well, you know, one thing that we've seen over time with jihadists, and, and it seems to be even more pronounced with ISIS, is that uh, they get a lot of converts. So, you know, it's still a very small number of the overall people who convert to Islam. But what happens is when you convert, uh, especially in Islam, which is, is more decentralized than some other religions, uh, you know, the, the first person you meet who tells you about Islam is going to have an inordinate amount of influence mm-hmm. on how you understand Islam. And because there's a, a vast and, you know, bewildering, even to Muslims sometimes, uh, array of texts and opinions and, and views in Islam, uh, if you're new to it and you don't know how to find information, you don't know how to talk, who to talk to to get a more diverse view, you can be steered in this direction kind of, kind of very specifically. Hmm. So, and especially if you're already a vulnerable teen or yeah. a vulnerable person in society and maybe, you know, an outcast or ostracized, it might be easy to be, you know, picked up. Yeah, there's, you know, we never saw any, you know, especially in sort of looking at Westerners and, and Europeans, we were really never, no one has ever found a profile for what this looks like. But you see sort of recurring patterns that, you know, represent chunks of the problem. And one that you see often is is sort of the seeker, yeah. you know, the person who's like, I'm going to try Buddhism and then I'm going to try, you know, uh, druidism and yeah. then, you know they go through sort of bounce around looking for because they're looking for something to fill a hole in them and then this is where they land what what do you think we need to know jm when you think about um you, you know i mean you've written a ton about this and you're in deep what does the actual american average joe person need to understand about isis well, I think, you know, the the thing that is most important and, and also most difficult is to understand that this is not – that even if ISIS is able to carry out terrorist attacks in the United States, which it hasn't so far, it's not, it's not a threat to our existence. Um, you know, the September 11th attacks, which I think, you know, really are kind of an outlier thing. You're almost mm-hmm. never going to see anything like this. It didn't shut down the government. It didn't, you know – collapse. The United States didn't collapse. The economy didn't collapse. Uh, Everybody stayed at home. They didn't go flooding out in the streets to riot. Terrorism is something that we need to deal with and we need to fight it, but it's not a threat to our our way of life unless we make our response a threat to our way of life. Hmm. Do we give it too much attention? We do, although it's understandable. So, you know, there are, uh, the list of things that are more likely to kill you than terrorism is incredibly long. <laughs> right. And, it, you know, it includes like falling off a chair. Yeah, and household uh, items, right. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so in that sense, we, we over-prioritize it because there are bad people who want us to know that they're behind it. You know, your yeah. chair, if you fall off your chair and break your neck, your chair isn't doesn't have malice toward you. Right. And... So and and there are some very narrow long shot risks that we need to worry about, like WMDs and, and biological kind of attacks that are highly unlikely, but you know we do have to give them some attention. Mm-hmm. Um, we allow it to take up a, a bigger place in our our psyche than we should. We we allow it to be more of a source of fear than we should. And mm. you know honestly, the thing is with the changes in technology and changes in kind of communication and travel, 
we're going to be dealing with terrorism uh, at, at some level for the indefinite future. Right. And, right. you know, we need to start building resilience and sort of trying to understand, you know, how to minimize it and how to minimize its impact on our politics. Yeah. No, and I, I agree. This is the new 100-year war. We had uh, another guest that talked about that. Just look at it as a 100-year war. But yeah. I, I also like the idea that, I mean, we were surprised on 9-11. And, okay, so we've heightened our understanding. We're preparing more. We need to pay attention. And yet, may, I just wonder what would happen if we, you know, just didn't make every single attack a major headline with tons of news coverage. You know. it's, it's tough. And, you know, it's it's also kind of hard to defend uh, making, for instance, the Fort Hood shooting a major headline when a shooting at a, a movie theater that kills just as many people might not be. That's big, so, right. You know, I mean, and I think we're we're improving on this. I mean, if you look at the marathon bombing, I live in the Boston area. Yeah. And, you know, that was, uh, you know, we dealt with it. Yeah. We just like went in. We dealt with it. Done. It was it didn't bring the country to a stop. Uh, it didn't fundamentally change our, our politics because really terrorism is about changing politics. Yeah. You know, through fear, right? An yeah. overreaction. Yeah. And, you know, so well, I think we're, we're making progress since 9-11. Yeah. Well, we appreciate your work. Uh, J.M. Berger, author of ISIS, The State of Terror. Go to check out the website, intelwire.com. Uh, also, you can see more of his writings as he's a regular contributor to Foreign Policy Magazine. J.M. Berger, thank you so much. Just insight, folks. Isn't that – honestly, I feel a lot better. Uh, just – Knowing where it fits in reality, one I mean, a, a per small percent of a small percent. Um, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll wrap up this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. And, uh, man, just continue the learning. We'll take a break. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Interesting interview there, huh? Where, honestly, if, when he says ISIS, it isn't a threat to our existence. It's interesting. I mean, really, if you just watch the news long enough, you would think that they are the number one threat against the United States. And maybe we're just full-on blowing it up. Over Now, it doesn't mean we don't need to protect ourselves, because of course we do. But uh, also, maybe what we ought to do is, you know, spend some of our attention just on focusing on more homeland security, maybe. Focus on, a little bit more on other methods of protecting ourselves. Maybe try to focus and pay more attention to these the outliers, these people that uh, might get more easily get pulled into, sucked into the ISIS ideology. Maybe we might want to spend a little bit more time educating everybody on Islam. And the other 99.5% of Islam and the great contributions they're making, you know. Or we could just keep talking about Yemen, which is right now just came up on my headlines. Rebels capture presidential palace in Yemen. Yeah. All the gains that happened in the Arab Spring are quickly being unwound. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's just – it's Sure. It's world. It's it's the world. And, you know, if you're the average person driving to work today, 
you're probably not going to be attacked by ISIS today or tomorrow or ever. So have a nice drive. But watch your office chair because it might hurt you. Honestly, yeah. Make sure your chair is ergonomically correct because that has a higher likelihood of messing up your life than probably ISIS. Okay. Uh, Any other headlines we got to talk about before we wrap this first hour of Paradise up? Japanese defense minister faced tough questions Thursday from parliament Mm. on the status of space, the space alien threat to Japan. Oh, I didn't hear about this. So so aliens are threatening Japan. Well, no, but people are concerned. Because it's like ISIS. It's like ISIS. (laughs) Likely not going to have that in your life, but uh, he had to reassure jittery members of Congress that while the country is prepared, it is not something they have ever encountered. Uh, They sometimes (laughs) find birds or flying objects other than aircraft, but they don't, uh, but I don't know a case of finding an unidentified flying object believed to have come from um, anywhere other than earth. The uh, defense minister said in response to questions from a former professional wrestler, (laughs) I know. So, it, so a former professional wrestler, wrestler he, questioned this Japanese defense minister. He, the, the wrestler uh, inquired as to whether studies are going on about on uh, such visitors yeah. or involving okay, visitors. Yeah. So, so think so. that through. If you, if you had an invitation to the White House and the defense secretary was sitting there and it was an open forum just at dinner, you, the president, your family. Yeah. And they, hey, anybody have any questions for the defense secretary? Uh, I, I have a question. Yeah, what, what's your question, James? What are we doing to fight the impending threat of you <laughs> un- unidentified flying objects? Excellent question, James. That's that's how that went down. Yeah. By the way, James is a wrestler, and because he's so steroided up, it affects his voice that way. Yeah, and then somehow it inflated to the point where he had to sp- the the defense minister had to go in front of parliament to express that no, we don't have any aliens. No, we're not studying aliens. Yes, we're prepared for an attack, I guess, but... There are no current investigations for alien... But that's what they're going to say. Yeah. Well, of course they are. See, that's the conspiracy. I've watched the entire series of The X-Files. I know how the government works when it comes to aliens. Do you? You know what else? Did you see Independence Day? They have them at Area 51. That's true. They're telling us not now that it's closed, mm-hmm. but you can't go on Area right. 51. It's, it's not closed, like it's a tour. Why can't we go there? Right. Why isn't it called X Area Fifty One? Absolutely, let us in. There you go. I you know where you, I know where you can find the answer. What's that? Hillary Clinton's her email. email, but she wiped the server clean. Or did she? Or did she? Or did the aliens? Also, uh, Seth, Sh- uh, what Stosak? Say it again. Seth Stosak. Hmm? One more time. Showstack. Snows. Snowstack. Okay. He's the director of the Center for SETI Research. SETI. SETI. Study uh, for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Yes. 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 The SETI Institute is proposing, according to the New York Times, with a zany plan to beam the entire Internet into space. The director says we could transmit the contents of the Internet into space, such a large uh, amount of information with its text, pictures, and videos, and sound would allow clever extraterrestrials to decipher much about our society and even formulate questions that could be answered with the material on hand, 
Sending the web on its way would take months if it's used by a radio transmitter. Uh But if you used a powerful laser conveying bits, much Mm -hmm. like an optical fiber, you could launch this data in a matter of days. Mm -hmm. You've been on the internet. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you want to send that to another intelligent life form we've and say, got, this is us? We've already got more junk up in space. Can you imagine how ticked off these higher beings would be if we – they're going to show up, A, ticked off, B, highly educated because they've learned everything on our internet. And they're going to be ticked. They're going to be, are you now, kidding me? Our TV and radio waves are already going out. Yeah. That's just how they work. Yeah, but well, so our internet, those we've up, kept but, to ourselves. Yeah, if you send all the internet out there, wow. Seriously. I wouldn't mess with them. Bit of a warped view, I think, of, of who we are. You know what? We would become, like, we would become their favorite YouTube channel of just messed up. You've got to see what these humans are doing this week. These guys are idiots. Um, okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, that's, uh, that's great. We're sending our internet to space. Maybe. Maybe. My vote is no. Let's not make anybody mad at us. We'll take a break, my friends. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, create healthier lives, helping you find your good life. Stick with us. We'll be back next hour right here on the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. This is the show where we give you the tools to uh, find and build your healthier, happier life. Good morning. Top of the morning to you. It's hour number two of the show. And uh, now we're all caught up on ISIS. By the way, when we first received the book, uh, one of our other producers made a comment that that book is is. Looks really good. Yeah, is is the state of terror looks like yeah. a page turner. And then another producer said, "Is is is was that Bill Clinton's book on it? Depends on what is is." No, and then we're like, "No, that's ISIS." Oh, that was something else. That was just something else. Hey, uh, great day to you. Now here's the deal: we've got uh, a lot of stuff going on, and I, I have a I have a debut in my office. I have a I have a new piece of artwork. That I've brought to my office down here at BYU Broadcasting. And we appreciate that piece of art. Uh, it will be on display. It's a piece of artwork of – I just tell a story, but I'm not going to tell the story because it takes forever. But it's a story about me in shorts, and I tied the, my knees because they had knee ties. And I yeah. tied them, and it made my shorts puffy. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, then anyway, I later I, I was wearing them at a family event and I tied my knees again. And then somebody took a picture and then somebody took the picture and then somebody made a painting out of the picture. And now it's in my office. We, we'll be auctioning that off. No, we can't sell that. But um, I just want I just want you guys to know that I'm I'm a, I'm it's it's expensive. This painting. It's like a Picasso. Did you hear about the Picasso that's up for sale? I don't think it is no, like a Picasso at all. No, it is. It's like a Picasso. In the fact that it's a painting? Yeah. Or are you talking value and artistic well, merit? I'd say all of the above. Okay. I don't. I mean, what's the difference? I don't think it compares, but continue. 
Well, no. This, not, not to, you know, rain on your story. It's a Picasso. It's a picture of me uh-huh. with my legs okay. in shorts. And that compares to a Picasso. There's a Picasso painting that is uh, tipped for record sale that was just unveiled in Hong Kong. $140 million this painting's going for. Mine won't get 140. Let's be real. I don't know if it get 40. What? I don't know if it would get 40. 40 what? Dollars. Oh, sure it would. <laughs> Maybe for the frame. Now you're being rude. I'm not being rude. I'm that's, being realistic. That's hate speech. No. Write that down, James. Talk to Don. <laughs> Write a note here. Okay. We need to report Terry. Talk, uh, talk to Don about Terry's hate speech. Okay. Yeah, put this on your tablet, on your slate tablet. Mm-hmm. Uh, his rude comment about my artwork being worth less than $50, $40. But maybe the frame. Put that in there, too. Cause... I had a point. Sincerely, oh, okay. uh, disgruntled employee. <laughs> send that to Don. Okay. Please don't send it on your slate. Try to email it. Yeah. Use some modern communication devices. Please. Well, so let no. me just say this. Then don't come in my office because that's where this – this painting's going to be staying for a long time. Well, we'll have to, you know, reassess it's a very how we sec- do things. We're in a very secure building, very secure. Probably the most secure building at all of BYU, all of BYU. And so I feel like I can protect my painting there. We should get you a better painting of you like you know, on the back of a rearing horse holding a sword. A sword. More of a Vladimir Putin type. Oh, yeah. of, with my yeah. shirt off. Yeah. Yep. My abs rippled. My right. rippling. Yeah. Maybe abs. not a horse. Maybe a grizzly bear or a tiger. <gasps> How cool! Like a grizzly bear with like uh, with a bridle on it. Yeah. <laughs> like I've bridled. I've somehow bridled a bear. You tamed it. The taming of the bear and my hair. Let's have my hair be longer, flowing, like in the wind. See, I think that would be a better <laughs> painting than what you are you have there right better now. Better in what way? Uh, in every way. Like all of the above way. Okay. Well, if any of you out there paint. <laughs> <laughs> We're asking for submissions. Is that what you're. <laughs> I want a bear painting with me on the back of the bear, bridled bear. I want it bridled. I want to have a bit in that bear's mouth. Hair flowing in My the My hair flowing. Bear's mad though. Mad bear. Not a cuddly bear. Mad evil bear. And my rippling abs. Let's say rippling with muscles. Let's say that. Okay, we're moving on. Because <laughs> you could be rippling, but I want muscle rippling. Your your abs are also rippling in the wind. Yeah. <laughs> moving on. <laughs> yeah. We're not rippling my, in anything. My abs are flowing. <laughs> my abs are flowing in the wind. President Obama <laughs> reportedly told John uh, Kerry that he was free to disregard the deadline with the Iranian nuclear talks. Really? Yeah. That's according to an anonymous source in the New York Times. You hereby can disregard the deadline that we all set for four months. They tried to leverage the looming date, more uh, yeah. conscious or, con- or concessions at the talks. Instead, Kerry was told to play hardball with the Islamic Republic, showing that a nuclear deal is no more important to Obama than it is to Iran's own leadership. Yeah. See, this is what I told you. They're now – they're slowly backing out. Yeah. And eventually they're going to say, Iran? Who? Also this morning, Indiana Republican legislative leaders, under growing pressure from inside and outside the state, said Thursday that they have reached an agreement and they will alter Indiana's law, uh, making clear that it's not you know proper to discriminate. 
Yeah. Or that's not what the purpose of the law is, is to allow people Once to again, folks, we didn't make a law to discriminate. Now, it was funny. They make a law. They don't put that in the law. No, they made a law to protect yeah. the rights of religious folks to have their right of conscience, right? But simultaneously, that gave permission to fight against other people. Also in the news, after a six-year investigation and subsequent trial, 11 former Atlanta public school teachers have been convicted of racketeering for fixing answers on students' state standardized tests. What's, what school is this? In, in Atlanta. Holy cow. Only one teacher, uh, Dessa Curb, was acquitted. The teachers came under suspicion in 2008 when Atlanta Journal-Constitution published a story on a suspiciously high increase in test scores. It's amazing. Our kids are doing fantastic. It is re- referred to as one of the largest cheating scandals in U.S. history. Ever since the <laughs> – When you tie performance reviews of teachers mm-hmm. to test scores of students yeah, and you combine that with students who may or may not care, right? so the teachers cheated and to, to well, look and out for Well, teachers that might need a little more money, <laughs> boom, bada boom, bada bing, you got yourself a real moneymaker. And you end up with a problem. Yes, you do. And that's why there, some school districts are rethinking that concept of – performance-based reviews for teachers when it comes to are your kids passing tests. Maybe what they ought to focus on is racketeering. Racketeering? And that's a big deal. That's good. Um, California continues to have, you know, work their way through a historic drought. Yes. Uh, Governor Jerry Brown has implemented the state's first ever mandatory water restrictions. By doing so, he hopes to reduce usage by 25%. His plan includes requiring large landscaped areas like golf courses and cemeteries to reduce water consumption, increasing drought-tolerant landscaping, Mm. offer rebate programs to replace out-of-date appliances with water-efficient ones, and require all new homes to be water-efficient. This includes uh, the restrictions will come down to universities, uh, all public uh, areas with grass. They're talking about, he he even mentioned like the medians on the freeway. If you drive through California, they take care of all that, where the rest of the country kind of just lets it go yeah. to whatever weeds and type of thing but there it's mowed there's flowers and they're gonna cut back on that because yeah, of the water anymore. consumption now it's gonna yeah he said barren. what yesterday he said they're five their, their water pack in the sahara nevadas are five percent of normal oh so they're way way off when it comes to how much water I mean, that's need. a huge state and that's a lot of you know they're gonna end up having to get rid of all the golf courses and just cement everything and then paint it green then it'll be miniature golf, basically. I'll be able to drive for like a 1,000 feet. <laughs> Fantastic. Good luck, uh, California. By the way, the rest of the West, we, you know, we're going to be hit by a similar thing if we're not careful. Happens to be snowing right now at my house. Kind of weird. April snow. We're going to take a break, folks. When we come back, do you feel like you and your spouse uh, are very uh, effective at managing your money and your finances together? It happens to be the number one thing couples fight about. Money and finances. When we come back, Jeff Motsky is going to join us. He's the author of the book, The Couple's Guide to Financial Compatibility. We're going to be talking couples and finance right here on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. It won't. 
not going to happen. Don't believe him. No matter how hard you try, folks, money can't buy you love. Come on. And even if you had the money, you got to be able to spend it right, right? And you got to be on the same page. In any relationship, it's easy to get hung up on the little things. You know, maybe he doesn't put the toilet seat down. Maybe she puts the toilet paper on the roll the wrong way. These tiny annoyances can lead to relationship spats. But the main reason couples fight today has to do with money matters. So it's time to stop beating around the bush and talk about some real solutions for the monetary problems we're, we're experiencing in our relationships. Here to talk about us and his uh, here to talk about that and his new book. Um, the Couple's Guide to Financial Compatibility is certified financial planner Jeff Motsky. Welcome, Jeff, to the program. Oh, good morning. Welcome. Thank you for uh, having me. You bet. Great to have you on the show. You know, uh, I work a lot with relationships, couples, you know, the, and they're constantly fighting about money. Now, how did you get into the idea of, I mean, you're obviously a financial planner. What made you decide, I'm going to go attack these, uh, the financial problems couples are having? Yeah, I would, I've been working with couples for a couple of decades, and um, I believed early on that couples needed to work together. And I started quite a while back uh, an assessment that I used with my clients, and then that assessment turned into a, a quiz, which that quiz ended up being kind of fun. Um, I started doing some work with it um, out in the public, and I realized that after I had built the quiz that uh, a lot of people were taking it, and there was no there was no real good information or takeaway after the quiz. So I started doing more research on the topic, and I realized there wasn't a lot of good books, material mm. out there. So oh. I, I wrote a book on it. See, it's it, there really isn't. And I, I see it all the time, and my clients are, well, what book would you recommend? And I now I've got one, Jeff. I didn't have one before. Great. I mean, I could go recommend you know, the the Millionaire Next Door book, but it wouldn't necessarily always address for the couple what they need to be doing. Right, and they, they have to be on the same page and be working together as a team to create and build financial independence, which that's what the book talks about, is working together so that you can have your own financial independence and, and financial freedom someday. How do we do that? So how do you recommend that these couples, what, where do they start? Do Because instead what they usually do, it seems like, is they fight about what he spent or she spent or you know the different goals. Where should we begin to deal well, with money? I think the the first thing is is just to start communicating because a lot of couples don't even communicate. They don't talk about it. Um, one does one thing, one does the other. They're not working together. Um, I, I started something a long time ago called a financial date night that I use with couples where they sit down and they and they start talking about their finances together. And that's a great place to start. If they're really struggling, uh, the quiz on my website is a awesome place to get the conversation started. And the website's jeffmotske.com, M-O-T-S-K-E.com. That's correct. And if you, what I find with the quiz is, and I've given it to couples for years, is I guarantee after taking those 34 questions, they walked out of my office or they got in the car and they said to themselves, hey, how did you answer that question on elder care? Or how did you answer that question on children or housing, and, and it just starts the conversation. So mm. it, it gets it going. No, I love that. I really do. And then you also eventually, we need to probably start making a budget. I hear budgeting, I hear about it all the time, and yet, um, and, and I hear it from financial planners, but I've never found 
a healthy, easy way to do a budget. How, how do you suggest a couple goes about establishing a budget? Yeah, that that actually, and 70% of Americans don't operate off a budget, and most that do have one don't really work off of it anyway. But I think the problem with budgets for most people is that they it's just a negative word to them. They yeah. just really um, hate the idea of doing it. But what I find is is to try and keep it simple in the beginning. In other words, take a one-page document, and you can go to the website at jeffmontague.com. Again, there's a one-page budget worksheet that breaks it down, keeps it real simple, and that gets them started. And if they want to dive deeper into using other, you know, deeper, you know, automated type budget programs, great. But just getting them started is the key. Right. And the, I, what I love about it, is, about having a budget, is it forces basically on a regular basis that you're going to come in and have an opportunity to talk. It does. And that's where, again, a thing like a financial date night can come in and you can discuss the budget and where they are. Are they over or under for the month? Those are That's one avenue you can sit down and talk about. And what I find with budgets, too, is eventually, eventually, Matt, people are going to realize they need a budget. Um, I get retirees or pre-retirees that come in that are now going to start working off a fixed income. And they hey, we should probably start doing a budget. <laughs> and the problem is they should have been starting that 20 and 30 years ago, but right. now they finally realize it. And really, all a budget is is to get you on the right page, just to know what's – just to give you the data you need. Yeah, it's – I look at it as like building a financial house, and I look at the budget as kind of the blueprints, so to speak, of the house. You would never build a house without blueprints, and that's what the budget does. It, it gives you what you have to work with to build your house. That's a great way to see it. It's It's just a tool, folks. It's not the evil sign of darkness. Um, it isn't. Talk about uh, behind money issues, and I think this is one of the reasons it's such a big deal in couples. There's deeper issues like power, like um, you know, control and responsibility that are also attached. And so we end up talking about you know what you spent in that moment, or you questioning my spending. But don't you think in the end it's not even about the financial issue half the time? It's about a power struggle. Or it's about safety financially. It's about something deeper. It is. And, and power does come into play if one spouse uh, spends more money or one spouse makes considerably more money. Sometimes they feel like they have more power or should have more say in what goes on in the relationship in the household. And that's absolutely false. Um, to me, to have you know, financial bliss in your relationship, you've got to be working together. And one spouse may be making more money, uh, maybe spending more money, but maybe there's a, a reason behind that. And, and it's okay uh, if that's the case. But at the end of the day, the other spouse is doing things for the, for the family as well. You, in your book, you have a, um, a section called The War of the Wallets. It's a quiz. Well, what, are yeah. some of the, what are some of your questions from that quiz? Well, and that's the questions are all broken into categories, but you know you get to rate your spouse as a spender. They get to rate you as a spender. Um, it talks about credit cards and how you sp- how you use them. It talks about um, if for some reason down the- if you don't own a home, maybe what type of home you want to buy. It talks about all these different areas, but I-, I always say it breaks it into four categories: lifestyle value type decisions, trust uh, and and transparency type of decisions. Risk, typical investment risk type decisions, and then planning decisions, and those four categories will give you a score, and that's really what I work off of to help couples. Because hmm. really, I mean, that's interesting. Like everyone would have a different lifestyle. Some want to spend more. Some want to eat out more. 
But then trust and transparency, that is huge, isn't it? It is. You'll find, <clears throat> excuse me, you'll find that um, about half of uh, people hide actual purchases from their spouse. And guys actually do it more than uh, women do. We'll, we'll hide something for quite some time. We'll keep that brand new, you know, tailor-made driver that we think is going to hit the ball further, um, you know, in, in the golf bag and not say anything for a while, or they'll hide something in the trunk. And that's just not a way to go through a relationship. No, especially uh, to me, that says the minute you're hiding it and you're doing it intentionally and you know you need to hide it, then it's wrong. You, you shouldn't be buying it. That's exactly right. And, or you yeah. should bring her in and talk about it and, and try to do it in a more transparent way. And, and I, I can't tell you, even just recently, I had a, a couple come in where they, um, this guy was working 80, 90 hour weeks, you know, just doing everything he could. But she was angry and lonely and frustrated because they weren't on the same page. So he was doing all of this work supposedly to get them ahead so they could pay off all their debt. And that wasn't her goal at all. And he was so excited to pay off the debt. And then they were going to go buy a bigger home. And um, come to find out in our discussions, a bigger home only meant to her that he'd be gone more and that she'd have to clean more. And so, <laughs> that's, that's in, interesting, yeah. You know, so in the end, they were so not on the same page, but he was killing himself and she was dying. Yeah, and, and what kind of work life balance of an 80 to 90 hour week are you having uh, time wise and income wise? So to me, taking the time to sit down and figure out what's really important to you. I talk about the rooms in your house. What are the goals in your financial house? What's important to you? What's important to your spouse? And then what's important to both of you? That, that's the key driver that's going to motivate people uh, emotionally to start saving for those goals. That's where a budget can help is that if you start to determine, hey, what we really want to do in life, we want to be able to save more for our kids to go to college, or we want to be able to uh, retire early or get to a point where we could retire, that's what's going to motivate you to do things like a budget. You bet. And, and, if, and if we're on the same page, then there's two of us working on it instead of one of us or, or pulling different ways, and, and you're probably more likely to get ahead. What I love about your uh, quiz is um, communication doesn't have to always be talking. It's just a transfer of information. And on your quiz, just seeing each other's answers on the quiz might be enough information sharing that it, this doesn't always have to turn into a long discussion. It doesn't. And what, what I love, the quiz has been the best way to start the conversation for people. But then it's been the best way to start doing some real decision-making and planning. And, yeah, just looking at how your spouse answered questions will give you more ideas that she doesn't want a bigger house. Yeah. She wants you to be home more, things like that. That's right. We're talking with Jeff Motsky. Uh, he is the author of the book, The Couple's Guide to Financial Compatibility, Avoid Fights About Spending and Saving, and Build a Happy and Secure Future Together. We're going to take a break, come back, more, of, uh, more discussion and insight from Jeff on how not to fight about our money, how to get together, maybe create some financial unity. This is The Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. 
We are going to end the arguments about money. The buck stops here. Today we're talking with Jeff Motsky, the author of the book, The Couple's Guide to Financial Compatibility. It's a tool you can use with your partner to navigate through all the financial questions that you have. Now, I know you don't have financial issues. Your partner does, but you're still married to him. And uh, many in many states, you know, you're responsible for half the debt and half the assets. So when it comes down to it, my friends, we need some tools. Jeff Motsky's put put them together. If you go to his website, Jeff Motsky, M-O-T-S-K-E.com, uh, just some great resources and tools there as well. And uh, you can get the book out there anywhere in the book world. Jeff, welcome back to the program. Yes, thank you. So, as a financial planner, you've you know you've been and a radio talk show host. You you're you have to put this together in a concise, simple way to help people uh, you know not have to fight. Tell tell us what are some things that couples need to know uh, right up front, and and where if we if we had you know, 30 things we have to focus on financially, what would you say are the top three or four we need to really make sure we get targeted on? Well, I think that the very top one is to sit down and really determine it and start to live within your means. Most Americans um, have debt, and they're, that's one of the biggest problems is fighting over debt and credit card debt. So learning how to live within your means. And then another one is really trying to plan out what your life looks like beyond the next day. You know, we spend all this time planning short-term things, but taking some time to figure out if we don't own a home, what, what type of house do we want to have? And if we want to have kids, you know, when do we want to have, start having those kids and start planning that stuff out so that you make good decisions with your money earlier on in your relationship that, that can help you down the road benefit by those good decisions, or you can make really bad decisions early in your relationship that cause problems later down the road. So just sitting down and figuring out what those are and then having time together in a, in a safe environment where you can sit down and talk about money. And I talk about the financial date night. My wife and I go out to dinner once a month and, and talk about our finances. It's not boring. It's not always budgeting and portfolios. It's planning and, and the future and so forth. But it doesn't have to be dinner. It could be a cup of coffee and dessert. It can be um, something in the morning. It can be anything where you're in a safe environment to talk about these areas. I love that. And, and um, you know, if it's a financial date night, you probably ought to take a group on. And, <laughs> yeah, and yeah then, that was a great idea. That's right. So then all of a sudden, two for one dinner somewhere. Um, it really, I, I love it. It's You use the word that I think is so um, important, is safe, where we, especially if we do it in a in a restaurant or somewhere like that where we know we can't fall into our traditional pattern of one of us yelling or screaming or running or hiding. Um, but part of it is it sounds like we just need to we just need to learn to get through it effectively once or twice, and then it can happen a little more easily. What, what I found with it, once couples start doing that, having those conversations, um, it's quite liberating. They both start to feel empowered to help each other, mm. and it, it changes their relationship. Yeah, and now we're a partner instead of, you know, enemies of the state fighting each other for budget, you know. Right, right. Um, talk about, so the plans, you talked about planning it out, having a safe discussion regularly about it. What about certain things like debt? I mean, I guess that's something we have to understand. I just think most people have no clue how credit works, what debt looks like. 
and, 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 you know, the compounding impact it might have in our lives. You're absolutely right. And I, and I talk about a lot of that stuff in the book. Keep it very conversation-like, but explaining to them that if you buy something on a credit card and you make the minimum payments on it, in most cases, whatever you purchased doubled in price. So how valuable is that pair of shoes that you bought if it cost you twice as much yeah. by the time you pay it off? So those are the simple things I talk about. And I think it for anybody out there that doesn't really understand that, they're like, well, well, maybe this isn't worth it if I'm paying twice as much for it. Right. It's not on sale. You know, it's twice as much anyway. Do you think we get too caught up in our FICO score and um, all of that? Is Is there such a thing as good debt? And do I need to worry about my FICO score, really, or should I just be accumulating money? I, I would work on the second half, Matt, the accumulation phase. Um, I talk about good debt and bad debt. And really, the only good debt is real estate debt where you get a tax benefit, you've got a low interest rate, and you're, unless you've got a rich aunt or uncle, you're going to need to take on debt to buy that house. But all that other debt, especially credit cards, all that stuff, it's just terrible for you to try and get ahead. You can't accumulate if you've got credit card debt or all those things that are out there that are, you know, at high rates that are hard to pay off if you don't have the extra money every single month. So try to accumulate. Do you suggest debit card or credit card? Well, that's a good debate. And I will say, I talk about this in the book too, debit cards, um, a couple things. First of all, either one of them you're swiping and the more you swipe, you're going to spend more money. Every study shows you're going to spend more money if you're swiping credit or debit cards versus using cash. So Mm. That's one tip. But the other part about debit cards are there's a lot of fraud out there in the debit card world. My, my brother-in-law is a police detective, and he said debit cards get skimmed, and they get your information even faster than credit cards. And if you use a debit card and they get your information, they're going to drain your bank account. Yeah. If you use a credit card, you've got some fraud protection uh, that you can deal with. So uh, I'm, if you're going to use one or the other, I would use credit cards just for the protection. But Always, always, always pay them off every month. Hmm. What uh, What would you suggest um, about student debt? So when we're in debt, and you know, sometimes it might be one-sided. One person got into more debt than the other. H- how do you suggest we go about handling that? Yeah, and there's a lot of student debt out there. There's, you know, it's, some people say there's over a trillion dollars yeah. in student debt out there, and it's out there. It's actually one of those areas that ideally you took on that debt to help your career and it's helping you make more money, and you're just going to have to pay that down. Now, student loan debt is not nearly at the interest rates of credit card debt, so you just make that part of your monthly budget. Yeah, you just hook it in and, and I guess make a plan for how we're going to, to do this. I had a, I've had a client uh, where one of them started a business that the other did not want to have, and lo and behold, the business failed, $80,000 of debt later. Uh, one partner said, I'm not going to do anything with that. It's all yours. They went, uh, the guy was going to file for bankruptcy, and lo and behold, because they own a home together, they own all of these things, she is a part of that. She is, and I, I actually write about uh, an example of that of a case in the book, too. And, you know, starting a business is a great idea, but you got to make sure that you've vetted it, you've got some people that have really gone through your business plan and said, yeah, this is an opportunity for you to make money, not just to have fun and take on more debt. And the other part about starting a business is both of you better be 
saying, yes, we should do this, because if one's not, you're going to get the blame down the road. See, it goes down to communication again. It always goes back to that. If we're not on the same page, you know, a divided house is going to fall. It will. It will. And and that's really, you know, uh, sad because so many relationships end in divorce, and a big part of it is finances. And I just want to see more people get on the same page early in their relationships so that they're doing these fundamental things so that they're not going to end up, that finances aren't going to be the reason why they're arguing. Yeah. We're, again, we're talking with Jeff Motsky, the author of the book, The Couple's Guide to Financial Compatibility, and you can find more out on his website, jeffmotsky.com. Jeff, what happens if all of a sudden uh, I receive an inheritance? Lots of money comes in. What, what's your recommendation? I mean, obviously, we should talk. We should be on the same page. What should I do? Yeah. And, and let's say I've got a budget. Things are running. We're, we're kind of – we're in a pretty good predictable groove, but I received $200,000. What do I do with that? Yeah, that's, a, that's actually on the quiz. It was a quiz question about that, and you get to answer it, and your spouse gets to answer it, which is great. But do you look at the rooms in your financial house or the goals in your financial house say, hey, what needs the most help at this point in the accumulation side? Is it getting moving towards retirement or what I call financial independence, the day that work becomes an option? Is that the biggest thing in the house? Maybe you've got some, you know, your, your student loan debt is out there and you've got student loan debt, but at the same time, you could take and pay all that off and just wipe all that out. So, right. um, it really depends on what's most important to you. Um, there's a risk assessment on the quiz as well, which tells you, you know, how, how, how you feel about investing, investing in risk and so forth as well. But um, bottom line is look at your most important goals and attack those. It seems like even if, if we are together and our, our goal is to pay off as much debt as we can and we receive you know, some inheritance – how powerful is that to be able to turn to each other and, and immediately kind of just at least think simultaneously, let's pay off that debt. To, to finally be on the same page on one thing, I think that right there is worth everything th- about the inheritance. It's just to be on the same page. Being on the same page. And, and there's something for an Americans to be debt-free as well. So if you have the ability to get down and get completely out of debt – that's a very uh, liberating and, and kind of a financial freedom for people as well. Do you sense – I had this question asked to me yesterday. Can – if we just are inherently different in how we approach money with one of us being more of a spender, maybe not like out of control, but they just derive pleasure buying and another uh, is a saver and they actually derive more pleasure saving, are those behaviors that change – and should we expect – I mean if, if we're falling within the same – a safe realm where we're still saving 10 percent, we're still putting so much away to retirement, if we're still getting ahead, should I just let it go or should I keep trying to change my partner to be more like me? If it's not going to – if it's not impacting your overall financial house and your goals and you're, you're not going to change them completely, but sometimes just changing the scenery. For example, if you're a shopper – don't go to the mall as much <laughs> yeah. because that, that, that's your addiction. You know, that's where you're going to you know, scratch and want to go do things. If, you're, if you love, um, I'm a golfer, so golf equipment, and you think you need the best new golf, stay away from the golf shops you right. know, uh, and so forth. And so stay away from where those habits are. But if one's more a spender and one's more a saver, you're not going to completely change those habits, but you can change uh, the surroundings to mitigate a lot of that. And I think, too, that's where – 
early on a relationship, you should be able to find out what type of person you're you're dealing with, and can you handle yeah. somebody that's more of a saver or more of a spender? Can can you work with that early on in the relationship? And, and that really is so important because if not, every single purchase is just going to irritate you, <laughs> or it every is, single savings is. moment, or if just simply the discussion always revolves around money. Like I hate to just make everything be about money or about a price tag or about how much does that cost and. Um, and there's some people that just constantly bring up the price of everything. Right. And I think you, you should learn that stuff early on in, in dating and, and, and early in your relationship. It's like, who's going to handle the finances? And then how are you going to work as a team? I, I talk about this to my wife. She's great, loves budgets, and, and, and I do as well. But she she pays the bills and runs the family household that way. And I do most of the longer-term planning and goal work and mm. so forth. But we kind of play to our strengths, but yeah. we still communicate back and forth between the two of us as to what's going on. Play into the strengths. Uh, we have about a minute left. Teach us, like I always ask for the one thing. If you, if you are a couple out there and we're listening right now, Jeff, what's the one thing they should do tonight that would begin this conversation and begin some progress financially? Well, we, we talked about this earlier, but sit down and start to plan a budget. And I will tell you, print out that one-page worksheet on jeffmotsky.com and break down. It's easy to put your income in. People are good at that. But sit down and break down what are your critical expenses, You know, your housing, your transportation, your health, and your food. Most people can write all those in. And then go to the next tier and figure out your lifestyle expenses. And that's where you make decisions on where you spend money. And that's probably where you're going to have challenges. And if you're trying to figure out where you're spending all your money, get your credit card statements out and get your bank statement out and take three highlighters, three different colors. One of the colors that you want to use is kind of your green, which are your have-to-pay type of um, expenses, like your utilities if you're paying those online and so forth. Your second color should be kind of your... Hey, these are things we like to have mm. that are fun for us. And then finally, take the last one and highlight your stupid, impulsive, <laughs> emotional, frivolous expenses. And you're going to find there's a lot in those two categories and say, would we be better off taking these things and putting these into our goals or paying down our debt? And that's the way to get started on the right page with your relationship. That's great. Great advice. Jeff Motsky, so appreciate it. And uh, again, I highly recommend you go check out that website, jeffmotsky.com. And the book, The Couple's Guide to Financial Compatibility. Uh, good stuff. We, you know, we can get together on this. Nobody needs to die. It's just a budget. We'll take a break. Uh, come back, do uh, a little bit more of the news and the headlines, and continue our discussion about life and living longer, creating uh, better relationships. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you find the good in life right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, James, did you take great notes for you and the and the missus? Yep, Mrs. To Be. Mm-hmm. Uh, isn't that her name, Mrs. Money? Mrs. Money. Yeah, she likes to go by Mrs. Money. Really? I tried to call her by her real name, but then she's like, "Nope, uh, uh-uh. uh." What was her real name that you tried to call her by? Malala. Oh. Okay. Yeah. How do you spell that? Malala. Uh, M A L A L A. Okay. It's like Malala. Yeah, 
close, but not quite. Malala Money, huh? Yep. It's a great name. So I hope you're taking notes because I, I know one of the reasons you fell in love with Malala Lankovic Money um, is because she's very she's a she's a very effective saver. Yes, she is. Very very much. She, she's rich, is what you're saying. Maybe. <laughs> Your eyes just darted. <laughs> What's that about? I don't know. But we will be going on money dates in the future. I think that was a cool idea. You know, what's funny, every date my wife and I go on are money dates. You spend money? Yep. Okay. Me and my wife, before we got married, before I even asked her, before we, I guess we'd- Before the court order. We'd hinted at we were going to make this arrangement. Yes. Um, We had a date where we discussed kind of uh, abstract terms. What if there were two people who wanted to make some sort of- Legally union. binding yeah. union, and would they be able to financially support themselves? Hmm. We went to a fondue place. Ah, fondue. <laughs> Got the fondue dessert, and all I remember, it was expensive. So the money date was expensive at the fondue restaurant. And you um, and you obviously agreed that we could probably afford it because there you are. Well, I was actually quite amazed because we started looking around at rent for mm-hmm. apartments, you know, cars and cell phones and all the different bills we had, the uh, student loans, debt, things yeah. of that nature. And yeah, we could we could make it work. The whole point was we didn't want to get married and move in with the parents. We well, thought that no. was counterproductive. Yeah. that Nothing puts a damper on the marriage than moving in with the parents. So we were able to establish that we could support ourselves, and this was actually a, a smart idea. See, I, my, I was different. I was still in school. My wife was just finishing, but she was a school teacher, right? So she was like, you know, filthy rich. And she um, she made thirteen hundred dollars a month. Wow! And I was like, "Wow, living that, large." That's some real money, right there. That's like huge. And I I pulled in. I mean, I wasn't just I wasn't just stealing from her. I mean, I I, I gave I gave money too. I made like two hundred dollars, two fifty a month. So I mean, I, I don't want to brag and just throw my money numbers out there, but we were making about fifteen hundred a month. And so she made thirteen. Yeah, and together you made fifteen. You were mooching. Not, no, 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 oh, no, no, oh, no, no, no. Oh, wait. No, I just said that I wasn't mooching. Oh, okay. I was. I, I don't know. I was growing my the, abilities to earn. The math seems to lead one to think. Yeah. Don't no. Don't do the math. Okay. Don't do the math. Just think of the big picture because <laughs> the big picture is no mooch, just more opportunity is what I was doing. Understood. Okay. Positive spin. Got yeah. it. And then we went to Wendy's. Mm. We were out. We were going to have a date night. Double when, Bacon Junior. No, this was back in the old days before oh. they did that. But this was back pre-combo meal. Pre-combo meal. Wow. So there was a day. A lot of people don't remember The Stone this. Age James of fast food. James doesn't even know about this. James. Yeah. Was this the time when you could get a burger for a nickel? Yes, actually. Not a nickel, but a quarter. A quarter. But there was a time. I remember as a little kid that you could go to uh, to D's. I think it was. Yeah. Hardy or it was D's pre Hardy's, yeah, like a nickel. But uh, no, it wasn't that. <laughs> but it was before the day of the combo mill, where you'd have to look at the board and you didn't just have a combo mill handed to you. Yeah, you needed one of these, one of these. You had to and, figure yeah. it out. And I'm like, yeah. well, geez, what would go with a hamburger? Oh, I guess I'll have fries. Oh, wait. I, I guess fries. Yeah. And then I'll have a beverage, and then that became the combo mill. So I ordered a drink with my dinner, and my wife said, "Oh, no, 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 no." Uh, I'm not getting a drink. And in my head, I'm like, well, 
Okay. <laughs> you can have some of mine. And I then ordered the drink again. She says, Matt, 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 I'm just getting water. And I'm, that's, you know what? That's going to be great for you. <laughs> You're going to love your water. <laughs> just drink it up, babe. And I'm like, I'll just have a beverage, uh, Diet Coke probably. I was, I don't know what I was, no, I don't even know what I was drinking back then. Was Diet Coke back then? Yeah. I don't remember. Um, and she said, no, Matt, 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 Matt. Um, we're not rich. This was the first fight I remember. Wow. And I'm like, this, this may have been a mistake. I now know that because I'm a doctor. Um, but I said, look, why don't you get the crowbar out? By the way, any sentence you start with, get the crowbar out. Yeah. And I like wedge it in your wallet and let's just wedge it open and just give me the extra 80 cents and everything will be fine. I'll work extra hard tomorrow. And then beat me over the head with it. That's that's where it kind of went wrong. And then she her head spun around, literally, like a little owl. <laughs> and fire shot out her eyes. Wow. And she talked like this. And right then I'm like, ah, oh, geez. What did I do? <sighs> now, at that point, did you recognize your error or were you looking at her like, what's the big deal? I was like, how did her head spin all the okay. way around? Gotcha. That's you, crazy. The lesson did not uh, no. did not. Transfer. And then we, we fought about it. We talked about it. And then so here's the, here's the lesson of all lessons. Don't – if you fight about it and you don't learn to deal with it, then you just have to push it underground. Mm-hmm. So I learned at that stage, I started drinking in the closet. I became a closet drinker because I couldn't buy a beverage in front of her. So, so you were hiding it. I was hiding like my, our last guest was talking carbonation about. drinking. Men tend to hide things. Men tend to hide them. So I'd now, hide it and I'd get a drink after work and drive home. I mean it sounds like a – I would get a like a big gulp or whatever after work and I'd drive home and I had like a 30-minute commute and I'd have to have the big gulp done and down before – you know, so now I got home. I've thought about doing that. Don't do it. Be, but I, I'm discouraged because I don't necessarily carry cash, so I'd have to go to the ATM. There's that extra trip, yeah, and then yeah. the bother. See, so I just run the card, and if she calls me on it, whatever. Yeah. Well, mine would. Mine I think would, that's more healthy. Mine's very attentive. My wife, I walk in the door, and she's like, <laughs> "Do I smell a beverage? Have you been drinking Dr Pepper?" And I'm like, "No. What are you talking about?" <laughs> <laughs> I gotta go to the bathroom. I'll be right back. It's bad. It's super bad. Super bad. Love the sound effects. You like that? It adds to the story. That's because we call this. What do we call this, James? Masterpiece Theater. Yep. That dramatization was brought to you by Masterpiece Theater. With a funding grant from <laughs> PBS. There you go. We we try to bring you dramatizations. We've had two today. Mm-hmm. Actually, what's great, James has done a dramatization, and now I have done a dramatization. The only one that hasn't, Terry, is you. So we will expect in the next hour a dramatization brought to you by Terry South. And listeners like you. <laughs> and listeners like you. My son watches his PBS shows, uh-huh. and he repeats all the sponsors, all <laughs> the different organizations. Oh, good. And then he goes, and he looks at me and goes, and viewers like you. And I went, wow, you watch this too much. I need to turn this off. Yeah, see, apparently it's working. It's interesting. We always tout how great PBS is, and they're fantastic because all of us learned to read watching like Sesame Street. Absolutely. And we also learned about promotional support (laughs) brought to you by. And this one show, it's like they're all from Pittsburgh. 
Yeah. Every single one is in the town Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. It's Mecca. It's it's Mecca. CBS Mecca. He has a hard time saying Pittsburgh. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Pittsburgh will kill you. So anyway, uh, the rule there, don't keep secrets or eventually uh, you'll just get all bloated up with carbonation and then your wife will eventually know. Just some wisdom brought to you by the Matt Townsend Show. By the way, put that on a meme and post it or a bumper sticker. We're going to take a break. Come back. Hour number three up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you find the good in the world right here on BYU Radio. everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. Three hours of fun and facts so that you and your family, your partner, your dog can all grow healthier, happier lives. Welcome to the program. Today, by the way, we will be talking about emotions. If somebody said, your child asks, Dad, what are what, what are emotions for? What would you say, Terry? If little Bucky said, Daddy, what are emotions for? I'd try to say there's something to be hidden, something you just push down and you try to keep hidden from the mm-hmm. public. Beautiful explanation. Nothing to be shown here. Thank you, Father. <laughs> Son, we stuff those. Yes. The repress those, please. Concealed, don't feel. <laughs> Real men, don't cry. <laughs> like, you bring that up again? You're going to know what emotions are. It's a beautiful thing. At our this house, if brought you, to you by Hallmark. If you start a phrase with, big boys don't, my wife looks over at me and I'm like, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> big boys don't tell their sons what not to do, son. It's a, uh, we're going to talk emotions. Because honestly, some people would say, you know, you really ought to get really tuned into emotion. It should be your second language. No, 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 no. Maybe it should be your first language. It really is your first language because if I hit your toe with a hammer, you're going to show emotion very quickly. I will emote, yes. You will emote. Then your language will come out. Yes. Mm -hmm. But emotion will precede the language. And if emotion is high, language will be harsh. The language will reflect Mm -hmm. the emotion. You're right. This is true. In fact, it's a test we're going to do – when our next guest comes on, go get that hammer. Okay. And James, why don't you just start taking your shoe off? Yeah, just get that ready. Okay. It'll be the. <laughs> it's like what? It'll be the third dramatization of the show. On the show, sure, we could just talk, but we also like to bring in a little improv <laughs> dramatization, a little physical drama on the show. <laughs> and then we like to make up and brand those dramas. Mm. It'll be fun. This drama, this emotional. Toe-banging drama brought to you by Stanley, <laughs> the number one reseller of – or sells uh, – the number one manufacturer of hammers. Ball-peen hammers. Ball-peen hammers nationwide. Speaking of ball-peen hammers, Terry, what's going on in the news? Wow. 
See, when you're that a was, producer, that was great. If, I like that. If you would write the segues, yeah. I wouldn't have to make them up. If I have to make them up, I'm going to just. <laughs> but I don't know where you're going. I don't either. Ever. That's what I want you to do. Yeah, I'm okay. excited to see what you have to say about ball peen hammers. Really nothing. But uh, the second black box from the German wings <gasps> airplane has been found. Okay. They'll have to hammer it out, I'm sure. <laughs> it looked like it had been destroyed by a ball peen hammer. That was the first one. <laughs> I don't know how the second one looks at the moment. So that's but great they news because that. they need this. They need this so they can figure out what actually happened. Uh, the Associated Press reports that prosecutors in Germany said investigators found a tablet computer that the uh, the co-pilot who flew the airplane into the mountain was searching for different ways to commit suicide. Uh. So his uh, his story continues to unravel mm-hmm. as he, we see that he was really in a a state of need to yeah. talk to somebody. Um. So uh, they said their searches they found for March 16th to March 23rd recorded on his tablet, and they're trying to reconstruct what he was looking at. Hmm. So, but see, you know, interesting with all this technology, it gives us some insight. With I yeah. mean, years ago, we never would have known what he was doing or thinking, and now we can look and see everything that together. he was looking at. Hmm. Uh, let's see, time on video games. Yeah, that is long been a uh, a place where people are saying that's going to ruin you it's going to corrupt oh, yeah. your mind this makes your brain squishy also violent video games mm-hmm. could ruin you and corrupt your mind devil's tool which brings people to the idea that video games are bad right Naturally. i i have long said that they are not bad for you that oh. there's a lot of benefit for you you without even researching and it. you can be a better person because of said video games regardless of what that you're has playing. always been your that's my hypothesis okay long term now you now what have what has been validated new research suggests that it's not the content of the video game that influenced the child behavior but the time spent playing the game this research brought to you by sony UK researchers discovered that that uh, children Nintendo. who play video that play video games for more than three hours a day are more likely to be hyperactive, get involved in fights, and not be interested in school. Yes. In the study, investigators from Oxford mm-hmm. examined the effects of different types of games and the time spent playing on children's social and academic behavior. They found that the time spent playing the game could be linked with problem behavior. This was a significant factor rather than the types of games they played. Huh. They couldn't find no link between playing violent video games and real-life aggression or a child's academic performance. That's great. And which came first, the video game or the ADD? Because Don't know. maybe the ADD can be medicated with video games or improved upon. So limit the time. Uh-huh. Probably limit the violence. But I know why we. I know par- why parents worry. Because back in the day, I don't want to brag. Okay. But I used to have an Intellivision. Okay. <laughs> I know what that kind is. Kind of a big deal. It is. Kind of a big deal. It, it was cutting edge technology. At the time, yes. So if you, some people, I just called them the poor folk, had an Atari. Yeah. I, I played on those two. I didn't have an Atari. Mm. I had an Intellivision because my grandfather was wealthy. Right. And he gave me and an And he loved you apparently. Yes. He loved me a lot. So I had the expensive version and expensive games, not to brag, but I got pretty good at it. And I would um, – but here's why parents worry because there was two – so, you know, at 8 o'clock at night, I didn't have friends over playing video games like on a school night. So I learned to play with my Intellivision by myself. But they didn't just – I don't think that back then you could just play the computer. I can't remember. But I would play myself. So you have two controllers uh-huh. and – but. Hmm. I had to use both hands to play the Intellivision because it was more advanced, not to brag. 
So I had to use my feet to play against myself. Okay. Did you refer to yourself as two different names? Uh-huh. Or yeah. Matt and split, Mark. I called my alter ego Mark. Okay. The Footless Wonder. I could see where that could, be of wonder. Cons- that could be some concern. Yeah. So, yeah. but I, again, if I walked in and saw my kid talking to himself and playing against himself and actually getting mad at himself and he's playing with his hands with one person and his feet with the other, I would worry. Right. And that's where the myth that technology messes you up. That's where it began. Also, that's where this incredible foot dexterity that I have also began. Which has served you well to this day. Because to this day, I can still throw a sinker with my feet. (laughs) That's great. Which is no easy feat. Maybe that's when when the plantar fasciitis begun, was the intense (sighs) games. Holy cow. Yes. It was my right foot. It was the two-seam fastball you were trying to master. It was my two-seam fastball with my long toes. Huh. Stop the two-seam fastball. Do you know how long I've been trying to figure out where my plantar began? Everyone's like, what? Are you a marathoner? And I'm like, (laughs) no. But I play video games with my feet. I still to this day do. I do it. But my kids won't let me do it because they're like, Dad, put your socks on. That's gross. So unsanitary. See your toes. Anyway, this is fascinating. So that's great research. Tax Freedom Day. Yes. That's the day. How many days it takes you in a uh-huh. year to work to the oh, yeah. point where you can, okay, You're now you paid your, your tax. taxes. Yeah. Now you can start earning money. Do you know your tax day? Well, average. The average For day. the U.S. Ameri- uh, citizen is April 24th. Wow. One, 114 days into the year Holy before cow. you can start making money. You've paid off the tax man. Uh, let's see here. It says the tax foundation also found that collectively Americans will spend more to pay taxes this year than they'll spend on food, housing, and clothing together. Jeez Louise. Tax Freedom Day in California, yeah. May 3rd. Uh-huh. In Texas, it's April 17th. Wow. In New York, May 8th. May 8th, by the way, my birthday. And for us yeah. here in the great state of Utah, April 20th. Guess when my personal one is? November? November 17th. Nice. Just in time, just in time for Thanksgiving. <laughs> oh, you got to love it. Do you know your tax freedom day? Try November 17th. Interesting. Good stuff. Good news. You did it again. We covered a lot. Boy, I feel like I exposed a lot when I talked about my feet and my dexterity. Oh, well. You, we're all friends. That won't come back to bite me. <laughs> We're going to take a break, my friends, and i got a great guest coming up next. Uh, Frank Ninevaji is going to be joining us. He is uh, Dr. Frank uh, Ninevaji, is an associate attending physician at Yale New Haven Hospital. He's going to be talking to us about emotions and the importance of emotions. Really, we probably need to get more in tune with them so we could understand them, use them as a first language. We'll talk about that up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. You know, as human beings, we are all emotional beings, right? Emotions are powerful forces for creativity, for social change, 
However, societal pressures guide us to hide or repress our emotions for a more measured public persona. Joining us is Dr. Frank uh, Ninavaji, who is an associate professor and attending physician at the Yale New Haven Hospital. He's also an assistant clinical professor of child psychiatry at Yale University School of Medicine Child Study Center in New Haven. And Dr. Ninavaji sees the benefit of returning to emotions, in fact, maybe becoming so literate in them that we use them as our first language. And now, Dr. Ninavaji, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. And in in reality, we already use our emotions all the time, don't we? Right. Even uh, if it's unintentional and we don't understand what's going on, it's it's already operating on us as a language. As a language, because the emotions are uh, part of our uh, innate temperament. It's a spontaneous, automatic response. All of us have uh, instantaneously, whether we intend it or not. Hmm. I love that. So it's it's instantaneous. It's happening whether you intend it or not. So what what happens when we when we kind of teach our kids or we don't teach our kids to understand emotion? <clears throat> well, that was uh, <clears throat> part of uh, why I wrote the um, paper I did uh, on psychology today yeah. about emotional literacy. Uh, that may be something that parents uh, want to think about in terms of parenting and enhancing parenting skills, and that is uh, teaching emo- emotional literacy, which means taking what's already there in a non-conscious form, that is emotions, which are by definition non-conscious reactions, and then putting words to them, defining them, making, making them articulate feelings. Hmm. And that's the definition of a feeling. It's something that becomes, it's an emotion that becomes conscious and can become defined. And then, uh, hopefully, it can become part of our emotional intelligence. I we love identify that. identify it, and then we um, are able to use it for ourselves, for emotional regulation, and for our interpersonal relationships to deepen and enrich them. So when we focus on it, when we see um, an emotion, our child is crying and frustrated, you're suggesting we kind of, instead of just like letting that be kind of a a subconscious, non-conscious reaction... You want us to kind of get in, understand what's going on, at least identify it, validate that that's an emotion, let them talk about it. And does that then help our children and us as adults? Does that help us learn to regulate? Does that help us learn to manage our emotion? It does. And actually, that is – it kind of comes under the rubric of empathy, Um, good empathy – Substantial empathy means that one automatically and instinctively synchronizes his or her understanding emotionally as well as cognitively with that of another person and then grasping it not only emotionally and non-consciously, but then takes it in and articulates it in a conscious form, puts it into words, and then can use it in a more hmm. enhanced, constructive fashion. Yeah. 
it's funny because um, emotions, they don't lie, do they? <laughs> emotions are truth. Yeah. The truth of our own reality, the truth of our spirit and soul. They are us. So if we, so it's funny because we could live an entire life never connecting into the real other. Well, that's what the um, older psychologists, psychiatrists, and psychoanalysts meant when they talked about intellectualization, rationalization, all these so-called defense mechanisms. They were um, barriers defending us against the deeper non-conscious parts of ourselves. Huh. And, and so that's, is that an intuitive like safety measure that we take on as humans is to not let people see the vulnerable <clears throat> emotional self? It's that, but possibly even before that, it's not letting ourselves huh. feel and see and understand what we really are because of all the anxieties that possibly can arise from seeing and experiencing, so to speak, the true self. Yeah. We're talking with Dr. Frank Ninavaji, um, who's an associate attending physician at the Yale New Haven Hospital. He's also assistant clinical professor of child psychiatry at Yale University School of Medicine. Um, I, I love this discussion because, you know, all the times you'll know your child is sad or uh, upset and you'll say, you seem sad. And they're like, no, I'm not upset. Um, why would they? And we do. They just defend it. They lie about it. But we know we can trust that they're upset. We know they're upset. And yet they're using other words. Why do we tend to believe it, but actually not believe it. Does that make sense? Like it when when I, when I hear couples fighting, they want to believe what the person said, even though when they said it, they were really, really, really angry. Well, you've heard of these old expressions, folia de, you know, yeah. sort of craziness of two, which really means it's a sort of mutual collaboration not to face the truth in its rawest state but to sort of mitigate it, to assuage it, because sometimes, uh, I guess we've all heard that expression, uh, you can't take the truth. Yeah, you, you can't are, handle it. Yeah. Right, you can't handle it. All of us have a very difficult time handling direct, authentic truth, the truth about ourselves. It takes a lot of work, a lot of motivation. And that was one of the reasons, uh, you know, dealing with children and uh, studying child development all these years <clears throat> here at the Child Study Center at Yale, I saw parents and children and adolescents struggling with this problem. I, uh, together with the head of child psychiatry, decided that uh, a new textbook, a new book for parents, uh, as well as professionals, was due and so I just recently put together a book, which was published a couple of years ago, called Biomental Child Development. Hmm. And uh, they use it here at Yale, and it's given to parents, and it helps parents, as well as professionals, understand just what we're talking about. Seeing the emotional realities that do emerge, seeing the defenses that do emerge, and then in a tactful, sensitive way, learning tools, tools and strategies to handle these re relational things, because relationship is really what's 
so important in our lives. Yeah. Relationship is decisive and key to well-being. And it's interesting because if my child starts uh, has starts emoting, then I will react if I'm not careful and if I'm not That's seeing right. the pattern and and recognizing and knowing how to manage and and understand my own pattern. I'll react to their emotion, then they react to my emotion and it's literally it's like a chemical reaction. Exactly. It's a resonance which, if we don't watch it, can synchronize to that lower level. It's a form of what used to be called a regression. Hmm. We, and we don't want to do that. We want to empathize so that the adult in us empathizes with the child that we're dealing with, the child in the child, and then modulates it so that a more constructive, emotional tenor, ambiance, and cognitive relationship develops, one which is loving, warm, and positive in emotions, so that everyone benefits. Because there really, there's been a big push in emotional intelligence over the last 15 years, 20 years, and, and really it seems like where it needs to begin then is in our parenting, in our in, in our processing, helping our children process their emotions, and as parents, we need to know how to process our emotions. Right. Charity begins at home. Yep. It all begins with self-introspection, uh, self-development, uh, and then by extension, we are the models for our children and for others. And we, But it seems like we tend, we've just learned... We th- I guess we think we should control the emotion by just repressing it, stuffing it, instead of what you're saying is recognize it, kind of hold it up, examine it, understand it, share it, don't stuff it. I think um, one of the most important words that I, that I just heard you use was control. <laughs> that, in, in a way, is something that always needs to be looked at. Yeah. I think that control is almost equivalent to the word manipulation, hmm. and I see it as usually turning out negatively. Huh. So what I do is, in, when I hear that word, control, I sort of reframe it into the word regulate. Hmm. So instead so, of control emotion, you'd suggest... The idea, regulate it. Exactly. It's uh, identify it, grasp it, embrace it, not be afraid of it, uh, examine it, feel it, richly feel it. And then by doing that, in that very process, self-regulation occurs. And if we are doing that in the presence of another, a spouse, a loved one, or a child, Mutual self-regulation, mutual regulation of emotion yeah. occurs. Oh, that's powerful. And then, I mean, that's got to be bonding emotionally exactly. together. That's And that's the healing, isn't it? That's the healing. Love is the healing. That's what love is, oh, I that's think. Powerful. That's part of it. Yeah. No, I think that's beautiful. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Frank Ninavaji uh, from the um, School of Medicine at Yale University Child Study Center. He is uh, an associate attending physician there. We're going to come back and get more ideas from Dr. Ninavaji on how we regulate. Let's get into some of these ideas of identifying the emotion and embracing it and not fearing it. Boy, folks, creating emotional safety, emotional intelligence 
in ourselves and with our children. The power of unleashing emotion. Up next on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. It's such a good song. It, it's interesting how a song just can put you in the mood. Now I'm sad. I, was, I wasn't even sad before the break. And then James played that. Now I'm hurting. Oh, well, uh, Dr. Frank Ninavaji is joining us. He is uh, an expert. You want to talk emotion? You got to go to Psychology Today and look up Frank Ninavaji. And Psychology Today wrote a wonderful article on emotion. And again, it's not like, you know, Frank just experiences emotion, which he does, but he also has studied it. Uh, he's an associate attending physician at Yale New Haven Hospital, an assistant clinical professor of child psychology or psychiatry, and is at the Yale University School of Medicine Child Study Center in New Haven, Connecticut. Dr. Ninavaji, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you very much. That song, man, just gets you totally calm down. That's what it is about emotion though, huh? I can, my body is attuned or has the ability to attune to the emotional, I don't know what word we use, vibration of another, right? Yes. yes. Inherently. Yes. That's a part of the temperament we are all born with. Some are more sensitive, some are less sensitive. Is that, um, is that hereditary? So do I hand that down to my children? Do I hand down my sensitivity to them? Well, we do hand down uh, hereditary material, but it, it, it isn't as if uh, it's X amount that we have and we hand down mm. X amount. Yeah. It's always modified in some way. So the child is not always a replica of yeah. ourselves, but does have, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a strong modicum of what we are in them. Which is why we would be a good tutor, and we shouldn't assume they're just like us. Exactly right. Like learning from the environment is very, very important. Modeling, that's, adaptiveness, adaptivity, that's very important. I think that's so powerful. Talk to us about some tools we can use as a parent to help uh, tune in a little bit. You called it regulate. Instead of trying to control our emotion or our children's emotions, you use some words like we, we want to regulate it using some tools like identify it, embracing it. Talk about some of those and teach us what we could do as a parent to, to help make our children a little more emotionally literate. Right. Emotional literacy is important. And that, uh, I guess, first um, assumes or presumes that we um, accept that emotions are real. Emotions, feelings, affects, moods are real and that they are important and significant. That would be number one. Mm. And then emotional intelligence would mean once we are sensitive to those experiences, identifying what one is feeling emotionally, and when you identify it, understanding the personal and the social meaning of it, and then using the feeling, which is the identified emotion, or the emotion put into words in a conscious way, is called a feeling. 
using it in an adaptive way to regulate yourself and then using it to regulate and help regulate the interpersonal relationship that you are involved in usually at the moment. So, so if my may- child was angry, I would – I'd identify it. I'd recognize they're just communicating. It's just – it's not something I have to hate or fight. I just recognize it and, and, and basically, I guess, like identify it. Like, son, you're, you seem upset. It, it would be a mutual identification, and okay. that's where a parent-child sort of differentiation comes in. You, the, the adult would be responsible for self-identifying and identifying in the child, hmm. because when the child was upset or angry, we'd have to identify the child's anger and then quickly and almost simultaneously identify what we were experiencing, right. the counter-feeling. And if it were uh, a regressed feeling of anger, sort of needing the child on his, her own level, we'd have to sort of modulate that quickly, neutralize it into one of empathy and understanding and, let's say, compassion, and then speak to the child, articulate to the child, gee, I think you are feeling something which doesn't feel right, which doesn't feel comfortable. It seems like you're angry, Hmm. and it seems like you're hurting. And I also hurt when I see you hurt. Interesting. Yeah, and and then that connects it to, you're making it more real. Now it's something we can talk about. Tangible. Tangible. Concrete not abstract, hmm. and not punitive. Yeah. We don't want to increase a child's guilt or shame. Yeah, especially, if you, I guess, if you want them to keep sharing, you right. don't want to shame them in the middle of this process. That's exactly right. And, and sharing is everything. Hmm. Sharing is like the tool of uh, authenticity in relationships. Yeah. When you think about it, you see so many people, Dr. Ninavaji, and parents, and I'm sure you – I mean, just in the, in the clinical work you, you do, we have about a minute. What's the – what would you say as a parent, what's the one thing that we could just do better in that moment when we're seeing the emotion? Just the one thing that could make a, a huge difference? Well, uh the one thing would be initially listen and not react immediately with a quick yeah. interpretation, but listen and have the child create conditions so you have the child realize that you are empathetically listening and grasping their reality in the moment. And then the second moment would be trying to sensitively articulate what you think is going on. Yeah. And you would know they're grasping it because you would see it in their emotion. Right. Right. So the emotion is the language we're trying to use by recognizing it and be listening attentively enough and show that you're being impacted by it enough that they, you can see their emotion alter and then help them identify it. Right. Emotions convey information and generate action. Yeah. Right. It's really, I think it's powerful. Dr. Ninavaji, we appreciate your time. We know you're a busy man. And uh, also, again, I appreciate that article. It really is an in-depth review of how emotion works and how we can use that language. Go check it out on Psychology Today. Frank Ninavaji is his name. And uh, Dr. Frank Ninavaji, 
just an awesome, awesome uh, resource for us to understand better our children. Remember, we're always communicating through emotion. That's not going away, friends. And so the better we can be at recognizing it and recognizing our own, it's the key to the to a, a healthier, emotionally healthy life. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to get into, uh, the, with the BYU Sports Nation guys, by the way, two emotionally stable people. <laughs> Spencer and Jerem up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. That twangity twang twang means we can only go one place. BYU Sports Nation and our good friends uh, Spencer and Jerem down in Studio B. How are you, gentlemen? Holler. We're good. <laughs> I slept in my parked car in my garage last night for an hour, Matt. Did you really? Why? Yeah. Because Off I have the field issues. I have. Was your car running? Sleeping problems. <laughs> Oh my heavens! <laughs> oh, we had a late night, a really fun night at the Y Awards. Yes. Oh, I saw some of those uh, on the feed there. I had one. I had one of those moments where I was driving home, and I got home, and I was like, "Wait, how did I get home? I could not remember." <laughs> Holy cow! It was, Head trauma. It's yeah, like I a, need it's, some it's, help, Doctor Matt. It's a Mormon hangover. <laughs> Seriously, too much PF such a, Chang's after yeah. the Y Awards. So much, so much of an emotional hey, high. Too much apples to apples. Yeah. And then, <laughs> Crazy. Oh, on your show today, guys, are you going to talk about Bronco's new, um, yep. his new name? White Chocolate? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. That, yeah, that was one, talk of, about that. one of the highlights, lowlights, depending on how you view it, of uh, a very fun night at the Y Awards. The athletic department celebrates the year that was in sports. We ho- hosted this mm. in the Marriott Center last night. It was great. It was did, so how did your hosting debut go? You know, it we was, thought it went well. It was fun. I'd give it like a B, you know? Was it more fun for you or the people that were listening? Uh, I think you have to ask the individual. Yeah, we're going to have three <laughs> yeah. of the winners are going to be on the show today. We're going to ask them how you got to ask them. Yeah. I mean, we, we critique how on... they play on the court and yeah. on the field, so Let we're going to get critique, critique from them. Yeah. Oh, you guys. We, here's, what, here's what we felt that we could lean on. We felt we could lean on. We we showed some of the top tweets that were funny, social media videos, doppelgangers, and power couples. <laughs> wow, those those I think went well. Yeah, the other stuff where we we're just talking, uh, more of a challenge. Yeah, boring. I mean, I mean, not, <laughs> no, 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 not boring. Just challenging. It's a tough crowd too. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's kind of a tough crowd because they're such not, a mix of different they're personalities. Not, they're not fans. They're athletes. Well, know? and that's what's interesting it's is different. do they like you? Because it seems like sometimes. The the athletes may not like the media. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. We come we're, on. If they don't like us, come on. No, no that's true. We're, you guys, you know what we're you not are? Salt Lake people that are digging for something. If we're, we're calling, a, if we're calling Bronco White Chocolate, we need to get you two <laughs> some nicknames. <laughs> no, Sni- we'll give you one of you Snickers. No. Snickers? Who's uh, Snickers? No, I let's just Snickers. call you. I was going to say Milk Duds. That's my favorite thing. <laughs> yeah, Duds is in there. But not Duds. Right. I see that sounds negative. So yeah. one of you needs to be Snickers, and one can be. I'll be Snickers because sometimes I get in a baby Ruth. Pretty quickly. <laughs> just Snickers baby Ruth. Hey, by the way, uh, j- this just in. This just in. Um, there's a new hamburger at the Philly Stadium. Oh, no. Here we go again with the baseball food. Bacon, what? chocolate. No, 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 no. It's a triple, triple burger. A triple, triple? That's mm-hmm. what Kyle Collinsworth's it's, going for. It's a triple, triple. It's nine patties. Oh. Nine slices of cheese plus one slice of tomato 
and some lettuce. It's about a foot tall. Who this, survives that? This is all about the they movie don't. Up. Or no. not Up, sorry, Wally. Wally! <laughs> Just eating, yeah. drinking. It is. As it's, last night, we or yesterday afternoon for yeah. lunch, we both went and got 44-ounce drinks from, uh, Ooh. what's yeah, it I called was, in Provo? I, uh, Swig. Swig. I yeah. was feeling yeah. bad about a 44-ounce drink, and then I, ta- I heard about the triple-triple, <laughs> and I no longer feel awful about it's, that at all. It's between 2,000 and 5,000 calories, so there's a range there. Again, how do you survive that? No, you don't, because after the triple-triple, you get a quadruple bypass. <laughs> Nailed it. That's it. Nailed it. That's how that works. It's close to eating six buckets of KSC. Okay, so listen to this, Matt. Last wow. night, speaking of eating too much, <laughs> Jerem has a wardrobe malfunction. Okay, <gasps> Zipper? Not like right, that. Right no, before the, the Y Awards start. <laughs> so we're in tuxedos <laughs> and like seven minutes before. Yeah. I took off my aqua-colored vest. My wife said, listen, it's not working for you. Close it. <laughs> so, so I said, okay, I trust your judgment. Uh, and I, so I lost that. And then, so I had, you know, top button up. The top button popped off. <laughs> I don't consider myself like you yeah. know overweight or whatever. Maybe, maybe, maybe I got to do some work. Some well, maybe you're eating too much. Yeah, maybe I had the triple triple, and then all of a sudden, uh, the button pops off. So then I went, I went and put the vest back on and had yeah. the the jacket open the whole night. <laughs> yeah, no one noticed. I talked to a couple people. They're like, "Wait, what? what?" I was like, "What? The button just popped off! <laughs> oh no! We're about to host this thing, and the button popped off." Well, you're lucky it didn't blind somebody. Did, did it fly yeah. off at a high velocity? <laughs> no, it just kind of dropped. Yeah, you two are skinny little guys. You know, you couldn't even fill a cummerbund. Yeah, we, we th- do, thank goodness. We do our best. So your show's going to be all about your debut yesterday. Top five moments, some funny, some not so funny, some awkward. We had awkward. some jokes that did not land at all. Yeah, have we'll you ever been in that situation? No, oh, never, man. never, never. <laughs> oh, okay, here's the thing. Like, you get the immediate feedback in that situation when you're talking on the radio or on TV. That, right? It's like you yeah. can say something dumb and yeah. like whatever. But like when a whole room is like crickets. Yeah, three in the key. <laughs> uh, is, huh? Do you have recorded? Is that recorded? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Are oh, you yeah, gonna play those? There is evidence of it. Oh okay. We're not pl- gonna play them. No, play them. We're em. just gonna tell them to. Can Can I have them for my show? Sure. <laughs> sure. Not. <laughs> Gonna make us look bad. Awesome. No, I Let's just think that. it's fun because it makes me feel good because I do that all the time. <laughs> Falling flat. Well, guys, have a great show. Uh, we'll bring you down a triple triple and then get you an appointment for your quadruple. Hey, that's that, that sounds fantastic, Matt. Always a pleasure. You guys are the best. Stay strong. Don't you know? Don't forget who you are. Okay. <laughs> never, <laughs> never. Good times. Wow. Boy, you know that's funny. We never get asked to do stuff like that. Host award shows? Yeah. No. No. It's a weird thing. I mean, we're here all day. But you do a lot of public speaking, though. Yeah, I do. But none of it, I mean, BYU never asked me to do anything. It's like, they maybe, don't, maybe they don't know where my office is. It's maybe, just right down this hall. Maybe we need hall. to uh, make our own rewards show, like have the townies or something. The townies. That's a great idea. Take a note. Okay. Make our own award show. The townies. Okay. That took you a while to get your chalk out. Yeah, well, you have to get the slate out. The uh, the Townie Awards. What would we be giving awards for? The most... <sighs> awkward moments. Uh, oh, yeah. Celebrating awkward moments. Right. On air and off. Uh, embarrassing. Your most embarrassing moments. Townies. We could involve the listeners, too. The best listener. Oh, we could give a best listener award. Make it a competition. We could... Like one of our listeners painted that painting. 
we could give the best painting award mm-hmm. or best talent. You could send in a tape. Townies. Hmm. What if – yeah, what if no one enters? Well, then we know – it's like instant feedback. It's like we don't have the audience here in the room with us, so we put out an idea and we wait. And- well, Brandon was like, he thinks that's a great idea. We're going to do that then. Townies. Uh, the Townie Awards. Did you write that down, James? Yeah, got it on the blackboard. Okay. What, what do you do with the blackboard once you've written on it? I usually wheel it out of the studio into my desk so I can keep the notes in front of me. It's really big. Yeah. Does it squeak? Yeah. yeah. As you wheel it? Yeah. Trying to swing it around through the hallways. Yeah. Have to do like a 12-point turn to get yeah, it around the corners. The yeah. Great. You're great at it, though. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah, I just wish we'd be asked to host stuff. Just throwing it out there. Do, do the powers that be know that you work here? I don't guess Maybe not. you need to publicize more. Yeah. That's get what get the doing. message out there. Send a, send an email to whoever you would feel would be a powers that be yeah. and say, hello, I'm volunteering. My name is Dr. Matt Townsend. I'll just send a universal powers that be email. To I'm all. much better than those guys on Sports Nation. No, no I'm not better. See, they, they did theirs. I don't want to compete you there. Could I, don't say, wanna, I just want to do it in the non-sports arena. I'm a doctor. Yeah. They're not. I think it's the powers that be at AOL.com. Is that it? Yeah. Let me write that down. Powers that be at AOL. That's the email. Because that was the first emails out, right? I believe so. AOL. Powers that be. Okay. Good. All right. I'm on that. That's good. I mean, I don't want to start a problem. They've they've cornered the sports market. I just want our show to corner a market where we host stuff. Yeah. And the powers that be probably just doesn't know. Yeah. They might be unaware of this talent they have on staff. I mean, you do call yourself talent. Yeah. You don't do that frequently. By the way, I'm not the only one. Well, kind of. I mean, you guys call me talent. Oh. No, not to your face. What do you call me behind my back? Well, we can't tell you. It's behind your back. There's a point that we don't bring it to you. It's kind of offensive. James, um, next time they're talking behind my back, write down what they're saying. Okay. And bring that back. Okay. Then Then it's in front of my face. Yeah, just check the blackboard, and I'll okay. have something on there for you. Anyway, I don't want to start a problem. I just, I just think you know, I deserve. I mean, maybe. I mean, there's gardeners on this campus. Maybe I could host their award ceremony, right? Best gardener. Yeah, best landscaper. They've got to have awards. The Green Thumb Award. Green Ooh. Thumb Award. Mm-hmm. We have time for another story. What? Do you want the Stanford tuition becoming free, or do you want Beijing's Great Wall of Sand? Any other options? <laughs> They're both interesting Let's stories. Let's go with Beijing. So China is building a Great Wall of Sand through an unparalleled program of land reclamation in the South China Sea, okay. raising concerns about the possibility of military confrontation in the disputed waters. Wow. This is according to the commander of the U.S. Pacific Fleet. They're building a wall of sand underwater? China is building artificial land by pumping sand into live coral reefs. Some of them submerged. They build up a nice base, and then they pave them over with concrete. Wow. By doing so, this region known for its beautiful natural islands, he said, China is creating creating a great wall of sand with dredges and bulldozers. Over the course of months, China claims almost all of the South China Sea as territorial waters, but its claim overlaps those with Vietnam, the Philippines, Taiwan, Malaysia, and Brunei. So they're kind of walling off the water. Well, yeah. 
the if you there's these maps that show all the territorial claims and they're they are they're overlapping it's a mess and china occasionally will go out there and confront fishing trawlers and other shipping yeah. lanes what are you doing in our water? saying this is our water and the u.s is actually like we we will take our ships and just stroll them on through there just to keep uh, keep the peace wait till you run into our wall and now what they're doing is as they build up these coral reefs fill them full of sand and pave them with cement they're like oh look land this is ours now and so they're they're looking for a, a confrontation in the future but think of that you dump enough sand in there mm-hmm. build it up and yeah. then pave it with cement that's one way to do it just seems a little excessive <laughs> <laughs> but it's china a lot of things that they apparently they have a lot doing. of money and they need some they need to employ a lot of people <laughs> They're like, we have money to burn. Go That's pave right. that non-island. That's all right. That's all right. That's one way to do it. Hey, folks, uh, there's the show. Boom. Three hours. Tons of fun. Again, go check out our podcast. If you want to go take any of our stories to your friends and family, look us up on the podcast. Just look for the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back tomorrow to give you more tools to help you find the good in the world. Take care. <laughs>